Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems and what you can do to solve them. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Regular listeners will know that over the December holidays, we usually release a handful of so-called classic episodes. That is uh, our favorite interviews from the year before that one. But as I explained in the previous intro, this year instead, we're putting out two important episodes that got a bit crushed and a bit neglected uh, because they were released during the COVID stay-at-home orders, uh, when many people weren't listening to podcasts, and if they were, they were mostly podcasts about COVID. This episode is, I think, especially important, uh, and for that reason, I am excited to give it a boost. If there's any ideas that I've read uh, in the last two years that might cause a big shift in my personal altruistic priorities, uh, I think it's likely to be the ones in this episode. If I had to summarize the idea in one sentence, it would be that uh, we can do a lot more good if instead of trying to do good by, say, uh, giving to charities today, instead, uh, we profitably invested our resources uh, for very long periods of time, uh, possibly even centuries, and then use them to do good at some later, more auspicious moment. There are a lot of major interlocking considerations uh, that bear on this question of when it's optimal to target your resources uh, to improve the world. And in this episode, we're careful to work through them each uh, pretty clearly and pretty systematically. Uh, so hopefully by the end of it, you can walk away having a good understanding of what's going on with this question and, and how to go about analyzing it, uh, even if you never read anything else on this topic. If you want to learn more, uh, we'll link to Trammell's paper on this topic, uh, which he's made significant edits to uh, since this episode came out, and also since this episode was originally recorded. But before we get to that interview, uh, we're going to share a fun five-minute conversation between two of my colleagues uh, at 80,000 Hours, uh, who you haven't heard from before. Uh, that is Brenton Mayer and Maria Gutierrez. A few months ago, uh, we ran our user survey at 80,000 Hours, uh, which you might have heard about because I uh, promoted it on this show. Uh, we all agreed with Brenton that uh, everyone who gave us feedback uh, deserved to be thanked publicly because the advice people gave was so thorough and, and so helpful to us. Brenton and Maria uh, also quickly talk about how influential uh, your feedback uh, can be on, on what we do at 80,000 Hours and what we offer to you, as well as Maria's experience uh, managing our job board. All right, here's Brenton and Maria quickly. Hi, my name is Brenton. I work on impact evaluation and a few other things to keep the lights on here at 80,000 Hours. And I'm Maria and I run our job board. Um, we're here because for the past few months in the team, there's been a lot of internal appreciating of how many people filled out our user survey. But a few days ago, Brenton pointed out that they had no way of knowing we were being so appreciative and we should tell them out loud. <laughs> right. It seems like for like we reply to a couple of people individually, but for 98, 99% of people, the experience of it is going to be uh, just hitting submit and then never hearing from us again. Yeah. And it, I can see how that can feel like, well, I'm not sure if that was useful in any way. Yeah. And from our end, this is very useful. I mean, the problem is that we're a nonprofit, and that means that we can't measure our success by minusing our costs away from our revenue. So we need to find other ways instead. And a big part of that, probably the biggest part, is just asking people about their views on our work and how it's affected them. Also, on a personal level, Maria, I think that you and I, and a lot of the team as well, just kind of love it that so many people took the time to like try to help us do better. Yeah, we feel very excited about the responses. One example is that there's this Slack channel where during the time when we were analyzing the survey, different team members would put little snippets of like things they found particularly useful that they hadn't heard before or funny things. Uh, some people were just really hilarious or like, oh, look at this person's story. Like, I really admire how hard they're trying to have an impact through their career and stuff like that. So it was like 
a constant feed of hearing about specific individuals, which we don't usually get. And that was really satisfying. One thing people told me they didn't expect about this overall process is that I think the team spends longer working on the survey, reading and understanding people's answers than what people spent answering the survey. Yeah, I had a guess of this, and I think it's probably about one and a half times longer that we spend on it than people spend on it. So so we worked as well. <laughs> thank, you, thank you for putting in the time. We also put in the time right. <laughs> to um, understand what you were, you were telling us. Do you want to tell us a bit about your analysis of people's responses for the job board? Yeah, for me, it was mostly a reassuring experience in addition to it being interesting. One uh, specific question where I really appreciated people's answers was about what kinds of value the job board could be delivering beyond being able or not being able to place someone in a specific job. People put really interesting stuff there that I don't think I would have been able to like be aware of unless I had heard it from them. One example is someone basically, even though they weren't looking for a job, periodically read all of the jobs and noticed like what they were more excited about and what they were less excited about and also noticed what they would have the right qualifications for and what they wouldn't. And then by the end of a specific period, they concluded, well, I really just should get an economics degree because I'm really excited about doing all the, all the jobs that require one and I don't have one. So that should be my next step. And to be able to help someone uh, arrive to that conclusion, even though we didn't on an object level, like find them a job or anything like that, is it's just really encouraging. You asked people about the number of applications that people made to positions they found on the job board and whether they started working in them. What did you find from that? Yeah, so it seems like basically from the people that answered the survey, the ratio looks something like for every 7.5 applications that are made that were enabled by the job board one hire is made that is enabled by the job board. And obviously, we don't take this at face value because um, there's like sample bias involved in the survey, but it's still a good indication of it not being the case that hundreds and hundreds of applications are being made whilst no actual hires are being made. Yeah, so people on our one-on-one team who are having like discussions with people about their careers kind of get to work with people who are using our stuff all the time. Yeah, when I used to do this, I kind of felt fairly in touch with what people were finding useful and that sort of thing. But for you running the job board, it seems like, yeah, you just don't get as much contact with people who are using the stuff. Yeah, I sometimes have interactions with users who uh, kindly like will mail us some feedback and stuff like this, or who I approach to ask about specific things. But in general, I get a lot less feedback than someone on the one-on-one team, for example. And, you know, everyone knows that in general, like, shorter feedback loops are a lot more pleasant to have. So to be able to have, like, hundreds of people uh, and their voices and their personalities and being able to, like, read through them, it's quite an exciting time of the year. Very cool. Okay, so Maria and I will hand back to Rob now. If you're interested in learning more about 8,000 Hour Strategy, which this survey fed into, you could read our annual review. That'll be out in uh, February or March 2021. If you're interested in sending us thoughts on our work, you could wait until the next survey or you could just drop us an email at info at 80,000hours.org. Thanks again. Bye. All right. Uh, it goes without saying that I'm also really appreciative of everyone who filled out our user survey. Uh, I spent a lot of time uh, reading your written responses and uh, learned a lot from them. I also just wanted to add a heartfelt thank you to every one of our podcast listeners. Because it's just such a pleasure uh, for Kieran and I to be able to work on this show. And without your support uh, and enthusiasm and interest in what we have to say, uh, who knows what kind of backbreaking labor uh, we'll be forced to do instead.
We really don't want to find out, uh, so we'll be doing our very best to continue to improve the show in 2021. Uh, thanks in no small part to the detailed feedback that many of you have given us. All right, without further ado, here's my conversation with Phil Trammell on patient philanthropy. Today, I'm speaking with Philip Trammell. Philip graduated from Brown University in 2015, where he majored in economics and mathematics and was awarded the best economics thesis of the year. He's published research on the theory of rational behavior under decision-theoretic uncertainty, and he's spent the last year looking into other fundamental questions in effective altruism at the Global Priorities Institute in Oxford, whose research agenda he actually helped to co-author. One question he's been thinking about in particular recently is the question of when it's best to donate your money, which is pretty natural given that he's taken the giving what we can further pledge to give away all of his income above 30,000 US dollars in 2017 uh, inflation-adjusted dollars. He is also a graduate student in economics at Oxford University and regularly writes uh, what I think are very intriguing blog posts at philiptrammell.com. So thanks for coming on the podcast, Philip. It's an honor to be here. And today I'm also joined by my colleague, Howie Lempel, who's going to help me deal with what are occasionally some quite technical issues here. Welcome, Howie. Hi, everybody. Today's conversation is going to focus on the case for and against waiting before having a direct impact. And I guess uh, one could do this either by uh, saving money and kind of earning investment returns and then donating a much larger sum at a later time, or by taking a role where you don't have much immediate impact, but you can go about building your skills and then do something uh, much more impressive later on. But first, Phil, why is this such an important question that people should you know, be giving a significant amount of time to, to thinking about? Right. First, I think it's just extremely decision relevant. If we're trying to figure out what the best use of a unit of resources is, there's this huge space of possible options, right? A lot of causes we can give to, a lot of interventions within the causes. And if we try narrowing down that space, there are a lot of questions we'll have to ask and answer before we come anywhere close to an answer. But it just seems to me like there's a more natural and uh, sort of high information value way to divide up the space, which is to first ask whether we should be giving now or giving later or working now or working later. Second, I think a priori, there are pretty strong reasons to think that most of the time one ought to be building up resources to use later. An analogy I like to use is that just as you would expect that the um, person in need you happen to be passing on the street is unlikely to be the person you can make the best use of, your, of, of the money in your wallet, and you should sort of try to find another location, to another, another person to wire the money to, we should typically think that the moment we find ourselves in is not the moment at which we can have the most impact. And there's going to be some more pivotal moment in the future for which we should wait. So it's just very decision relevant. I think there are a lot of reasons to take the possibility of waiting to have impact more seriously. So why is this kind of a counterintuitive idea? I guess if you look around, it seems like most people are trying to have impact, an impact right away and perhaps not doing the sorts of things that you might recommend if you thought, well, maybe we should try to have an impact in hundreds of years time. Right. Yeah. And thanks for mentioning the, the hundreds of years point, because that's, uh, you know, so far, everything we, we've said could have been interpreted as meaning you should just wait five years or 20 years. But the possibility, I think, is really underconsidered is that we should wait for longer than a human lifetime. I think that's counterintuitive because, for one thing, most people just don't care that much about what happens after, after they die. So most like retirement planning decisions and political decisions and everything else that we sort of develop our intuitions around are made on a timescale of, you know, months or years or decades. And um, just sort of the thoughts and the infrastructure that would be needed to, to actually sort of explore the possibility of acting on a longer time scale, therefore haven't been haven't been explored as thoroughly. You know, there just kind of isn't as much, you know, legal infrastructure or economic theory or whatever concerning the question of how to effectively spend one's funds in centuries time. 
And what could kind of be the, the magnitude of the, of the cost of the downside for people who are trying to have a big impact and I guess the effective altruism community specifically, if we kind of get this question of timing or, you know, of the right discount rate to have about impact and, and, and our work kind of wrong in, in either direction where we like either try to do it too soon or too late? Yeah, um, there's in some sense no limit to the downside because you, it's always possible that... What you do is completely useless. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, but one sort of fact i think to to bring up front and center and and you know kind of highlight the importance of the question is that you know the the, the us stock market has averaged over 7% annual returns over the past 100 years and um maybe that won't continue but like like maybe it will or maybe maybe it'll be even higher if those sorts of interest rates persist for another century money invested now will roughly double in value every decade, which means it'll multiply by a factor of two to the 10 after 100 years. And obviously, it'll, you might also expect it to get more expensive to do good over time. But whatever reasons there are to, to spend rather than like invest for 100 years, they have to overcome this like two to the 10, you know, <laughs> factor in favor, of, uh, in, in favor of waiting. And that's just after one century. So the stakes really are high. What have people had to say about this question in the past? I guess it wasn't completely made up by you. Right, right, of course. Yeah, so basically everyone thinking about how to do philanthropy right has has encountered this problem in some form. And maybe five or so years ago, there were a lot of blog posts in the EA community which tried to answer the question of whether to give now or later. But most of them were focused, A, on the specific cause area of global poverty, and B, on the timescale of like a decade or so, right? Not, not really delving into what we're going to be delving into, right? Whether to consider giving on a much longer timescale. There are some exceptions. So Robin Hansen wrote a bit a few years ago about whether we should consider trying to um, save on a timescale of like centuries or longer, and recently has been talking about that idea in more depth. People can look up a, a lecture he's given on long legacies and fights as a title, if they're interested for about his thoughts on this. But as far as I can tell, that's basically the sum of it. And no one's really tried to create a reasonably formal model of the considerations at play and kind of what they have to say about whether whether we should try saving on a timescale of centuries. Yeah, people were talking about this quite a lot five years ago. Then it kind of like the conversation died down a little bit until the last year when it's like been very much back on the table again. Why do you think that is? Right. So I think different cause area camps within the effective altruism movement have all had different reasons for thinking that now is probably a good time to give, right? So people who think that global poverty is, is the most important cause will sometimes point out that the global poor are getting richer quite quickly and like opportunities to help them are, are getting taken quite quickly. And so maybe uh, sort of, yeah, again, on, on a timescale of like a decade, you might think that the cost of helping the world's poor is rising more quickly than like 7% per year or whatever. Even that I'm not, I'm not convinced of actually. So GiveWell's top recommendation of the Against Malaria Foundation had an estimated cost per life saved of like $3,400 for a while. And now they're recommending malaria consortium at a cost per life save of like $2,000. And, you know, a lot of countries aren't experiencing this catch up growth. So even if on average, that's what we observe, then it's still like... As long as someone isn't. Yeah, exactly, exactly. But anyway, that was kind of the, that was roughly the line of reasoning, I think. Likewise, in animal welfare, there's been a lot of optimism about us maybe being being on the verge of transformative technologies like clean meat, which which would kind of solve the problem. And so it's just a, a matter of what we do to hasten it in the in the near term or to kind of alleviate the suffering of, of animals that have to endure the short term. And um, then among, among long-termist types, 
I think until recently, that space was somewhat dominated by people who also thought that the not not just that the most effective interventions were those broadly aimed at improving the long term future, but in particular that there were these quite substantial existential risks to like the world or human civilization, which were quite pressing and that they had to be dealt with very quickly or else we would suffer the the catastrophe. So I think, yeah, I mean, it's a little suspicious, right, that people across all, all these different cause areas and, you know, and other, other areas of life outside of effective altruism often, so often seem to come to the conclusion that, that the best opportunity is pressing. Yes, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think as, as people have reflected on that, they've started taking the, the, the possibility of what what you sometimes call low discount rate long termism more seriously, right? The idea that we should really try just to build up resources for use in, in the, the relatively distant future. Yeah, so I think another potential reason that, at least in public, there hasn't been as much of this conversation is that five or ten years ago, the EA community was almost entirely composed of individual donors donating sort of small amounts of money and then all sort of together in public figuring out you know, how to approach uh, giving strategy. And as it's become the case that like a very large portion of EA's financial resources are now housed at OpenFill and they sort of already have their endowment and don't need to sort of convince others, it might be the case that even if a similar amount of conversation about this issue was going on, a lot of it could be sort of you know, now housed privately as Open Phil figures out how quickly to spend, as opposed to publicly trying to like convince tons of small donors. Yeah, it's, that seems like a possibility. All right, so uh, let's maybe launch into this fully. I think to, to start off with, maybe for the first hour or two, even uh, we should mostly focus, I guess, on the on the money case and the, the, the donating case because that's kind of easier, cleaner to discuss. Just think about investment returns. Things get a little bit uh, trickier. There's other things that, that come into play once we're talking about uh, people's careers and kind of yeah, timing of their career. Like, should they try yeah. to have an impact now or in twenty years' time? Although maybe we, we can we can talk talk a little bit about careers as we go, but maybe save that for a section towards the end. So. Another assumption that we're making, in addition to starting the discussion by focusing on money as opposed to other resources you could use now or invest, is that we're going to work with the sort of simpler case of giving money directly to the global poor as sort of an example of what it would be to have a direct impact now. And later on, we may discuss the extent to which that changes if you're doing other interventions. All right. With with that out of the way, I guess, uh, yeah, what, Phil, do you think are the, are the most compelling arguments for thinking that, at least in kind of an ordinary circumstance, a philanthropist also ought to try to be like quite patient and, and wait before spending their funds? I guess we've, we've slightly already alluded to, to perhaps what's the what's the main one, which is just that there's pretty substantial investment returns if you, if you wait a long time. Would you say that's kind of the, the key issue? In some sense, that's the key issue when you're thinking about doing something you know, acting on an opportunity that's basically always there, which is just to use the money to increase the consumption of people alive at the time that you're spending it. Picking that apart a little more, I think, as I as I mentioned earlier, what matters isn't really the rate at which your resources grow, it's how that compares to the rate at which it gets more expensive to help people. But there's this structural reason why you should think that the interest rate is almost always higher than the rate at which it gets more expensive to help people. And that's that people are impatient. People discount their own well-being within their own lives. You know, I mean, everyone's just felt this. The the prospect of immediate pain is weighs way more heavily yeah, than, than the prospect of pain in, in decades. And uh, perhaps even more importantly, people discount what happens to their, their descendants relative to themselves. But 
patient philanthropist might care about pleasures and pains whenever they occur and to whomever they occur. And so what we're in is this world where interest rates are basically set by the impatient. You, you know, if it gets 2% more expensive to help someone next year, you know, to avert a pain or to buy a pleasure, they'll be indifferent between, you know, a dollar now and a dollar and like five cents or something next year. And the difference between those two rates is, uh, is their impatience. So by just waiting a year, you can help them a few percent more than you could have done or help them or, or you know, their children or something, a few percent more than you could have by giving them, giving to them this year. And that logic just compounds. So as time goes on, you can just do, do more and more good by waiting. Yeah, I think this may not be completely obvious to, to the audience that economists think that there's like going to be a pretty good relationship between how impatient people are in general, or I guess how impatient people with lots of wealth are in general, and the kind of investment returns you would expect to get in the stock market or investing in housing and so on. I just want to like, yeah, exp- explain that connection a little bit. So let's say right now, it's the case that everyone knows that if they put a dollar in the stock market, they'll get a dollar and six cents next year. It's not exactly right, of course, that some of the uh, the rate is compensating people for risk and so on, but whatever. Let's say let's say that's let's say there's some investment like that. What that means is that people on the margin are indifferent between a dollar now and a dollar and six cents next year, right? I mean, anyone with a dollar could just buy a dollar and six cents next year with it. Now, if people are, if it's the case that because people will be richer and and so on, it'll be you know four percent more expensive to uh, help them next year to buy a util, as it were, they'll be indifferent between the dollar and the dollar and six cents because they discount their well-being at 2% a year. Now, if they discounted their well-being at 3% a year, then they would be indifferent between a dollar and a dollar and seven cents next year. And if they discounted it even more heavily, the interest rate would be even higher. So that's the relationship between the two. What do you mean by the interest rate when you talk about that? Yeah, I mean, every, every asset has its own sort of expected rate of return and its own risk profile. And in most of the discussion today, I think we'll abstract away from that and just assume that there's a single low risk rate at which people can can invest resources today and, and earn more resources in the future. Yeah. So like if you if you can buy a share of some company today and you knew it was going to, I mean, you knew it would be worth 1.06 times what you paid for it next year, then that would mean an interest rate of, of 6% if there were no other dividends or anything involved. Yeah, and I guess this kind of interest rate comes in all kinds of forms. So it's like sometimes people buy houses and then the houses become more valuable and kind of the rate of appreciation there is kind of the interest rate there. And you've got, you got bonds where people earn kind of the coupon and they get back the principal at the end or you like leave money in your bank account, which is kind of similar. And then we kind of abstract away from all of these specific details of the specific kinds of investments and say kind of what's the background rate of investment returns that, that people expect from you know, making an investment in the, in the, in the stock market. So we don't have to like uh, yeah play around too much with the details. And of course, yeah, the investment returns for these different asset classes uh, kind of tend to move up and down in, in tandem. Although for some, like for riskier assets, it tends to be higher. Is, was that a good summary? Yeah, that all seems about right. I mean, we could always get ever more into the weeds of like what we mean by a riskier asset, right? Maybe what matters more is whether an asset's correlated with other assets rather than its actual sort of volatility in itself. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but anyway, yeah. Okay. Yes. So with all of that out of the way, can you give any more kind of concrete examples to give people a sense of, of like how big this effect of investment returns is? Cause I think it, when you just talk about, you know, two to the 10, it's, it could be a little bit abstract. It's like what, you know, we take like a hundred dollars, how much does that turn into in the future? And I guess given potential price increases, how much more stuff can you actually buy? So first off, I should say that that 7% interest rate the 7% historical interest rate I mentioned was a real interest rate. So that was after inflation. Mm. So that means that someone investing 100 years ago could really buy two to the 10 times more more stuff today, houses and all the rest of it. 
I mean, maybe it would help just to say that two to the 10 is 1,024 <laughs> and that, you know, a hundred winning 110 years doubles that again. So that's 2048. And so right. it goes. Yeah. So in a sense, there's like a lot of potential power here. Like if you waited 200 years. Yeah. So I just calculated this out. Uh, if you have a 7% return for 200 years then you have 750,000 times as much money. So yeah, maybe we should use uh, these, these longer time scales if we, if we want more, more striking examples. Yeah, is there anything else to say on, on this issue of just like, obviously, potentially, you should save if you're getting these enormous investment returns, and you can have way more, way more in future? Yeah, I mean, we'll talk about some counter arguments later. Uh, of course, invested money can be lost. And you might think that actually, in, in some domains, it's getting more expensive to do good more quickly than that. But um, this seems like a good place to start. Yeah, in the in the paper that that we'll link to, uh, which which you've written up about this topic, use these uh, terms. I guess R is the real interest rate, and then there's uh, then we talk about G, which is kind of the, the global economic growth rate, right? Yeah, I guess some people might recognize those terms from uh, Piketty and his famous like R is greater than G. I'm sure we've all read uh, Capital in the 21st Century. Yeah, and then in that paper, you also run through this quite striking ex- example where you talk about how even if your goal is to give money, to kind of just transfer money to the world's poorest people, and even if you think that kind of severe poverty is basically gradually getting eliminated in a couple of hundred years' time, there'll be no one who's kind of poor by our standards today, it can still be better to, to, to save up this money and then give like vastly larger amounts to people who in the future will be like much richer than, than we are now simply because the amounts of money that you can give is, is, is so much greater. Do you want to kind of work through that case, which I think I, I found it quite counterintuitive when I, when I read? Sure. I should say first that, yeah, this is assuming utilitarianism. So if you have some what's called like a prioritarian moral view or something that says that the, the badly off get more moral weight, not just because it's easier to help them or, or some other view along those lines, then this conclusion doesn't hold. And also that it's assuming that utility and consumption doesn't literally just plateau at some point, but we can roughly extrapolate the kind of the curve, you know, the, the logarithmic or other other <laughs> sort of reasonable looking curve out well beyond the observed range, right? But anyway, if it is the case that the logic I articulated earlier continues to hold, right? So the interest rates continue to be higher, a few percent higher than the rate at which you can make someone better off by by spending on them or by, you know, giving them money to spend on them on themselves, then I think I, I worked out that in something like 279 years' time, invested money just given to developed world investors would create more welfare than that money given today to the world's poorest. So even if you think that like global poverty will be eliminated, in fact that like the developing world would completely catch up and and so follow the same trajectory as the the, the developed world is currently on. You'll you'll still have this 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 opportunity, which is just to like give it to the future rich, who will be very very rich. In fact, they'll be like they'll be like 250 times richer if they get two percent richer per year. But you'll be like 165,000 times richer if even if you just grow at like 4.4 percent per year, right? So that's lower than the historical stock market rate of return. And that 165,000 just barely swamps the the effect that it gets harder to help them because it'll all be 250 times richer. So. That's how the numbers seem to work out. I guess some listeners might be rolling their eyes right now and thinking, well, are people really going to be this much richer in, in 279 years' time? And of course, they might not be in reality. But here we're just kind of imagining a toy example where economic growth just continues nicely every year and there's like good investment returns and people are still around. So it's something like the next 279 years look a little bit like the previous 279 years. Yeah, I think importantly, actually, even though that is kind of the, the simplest way to set up the example, it doesn't rely on 
growth continuing. Um, it gets stronger, I guess, if growth stops, right? Or yeah, I mean, it depends why growth stops. But yeah. all that matters is for impatience to continue. As long as impatience continues, this gap between the interest rate and the rate at which it gets more expensive to help people will compound over time. But yeah, right. So if everyone's gotten poorer and, and you've, you've gotten rich less, less quickly, right, or if you, you've even you know, gotten a little poorer yourself in the meantime, there'll still be this wedge between how much good each dollar does and how many dollars you have that, that's, that's compounded because of that that impatience that was built into the interest rate. So to like spell this out super clearly in this kind of toy example to explain how this might work, we're comparing giving, I guess, $1 to kind of the world's poorest people today or $165,000 to someone who is, I guess, 250 times as rich as the world's poorest person today. No, not as the world's no. poorest. Oh, no. As, as oh. a typical investor in a developed world country. Oh, right. Okay. Uh, well, why not use the example of someone who's very poor? I guess you, you think that there might be a lot of catch-up growths with their income, and so that complicates the issue a bit? Yeah. A, a common counter-argument to the idea of waiting to give is that the world's poorest are currently getting richer more quickly than the interest rate due to some sort of market failure where they they can't borrow to invest in their kind of high return catch up projects at the moment. And this is a serious consideration. There are a lot of places that ex- seem to be exhibiting some form of catch up growth and microfinance was I mean, my understanding is it hasn't played out as well as it was initially hoped, but it was kind of motivated by this observation, right? It's like you have these poor regions that are growing more quickly than than the interest rate. And so it's you should actually either try to help them now rather than waiting just like one or two years or or invest in, in those regions through, through some sort of like setup that that overcomes the like costs of, of uh, implementing, you know, loans in the developed world or whatever. Anyway, the, the point is, even if you think that there will be this like full catch up growth, right, all that that means is that it would be better to give now than to give in like a few years time. Right. But once they've caught up, they can't they can't grow faster than the the world as a whole forever. Eventually, their growth rate will just equal the the world growth rate because they they'll just sort of be able to like if they have their opportunities to to grow that are that are higher than the interest rate they'll they'll just borrow at the interest rate until all those are expended. So we can just sort of fully fully accept that argument and just and just ask okay well how long would it take before yeah before just like giving to to future developed world investors does more good than giving to the world's poorest today. I don't think that's the best thing to do. I just think it kind of like puts a bound on the argument. Yeah, you're handicapping yourself here with by having a, an intervention that doesn't really make a ton of sense. But then, so your point is kind of, is, is that after 279 years with these assumptions, the investment returns are enough to not only overcome the income growth that people will have over that time, but also the fact that you're now targeting it at just at like a person with a typical level of income at that, at that time. But even even given all of that, it still might you might still might have a bigger effect on welfare. Yeah. Just, just because the amount of money that you have to give is growing by one hundred and sixty five thousand fold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How uh, I guess the argument looks stronger if we think about like what would be the most effective interventions that, that you have available at that time. That could be a potentially pretty huge effect, right? Yeah, I think so. I, I alluded to this at the beginning when I said that you should think that the moment at which you can have the most impact is probably not the present moment, and. Yeah, I mean that that wouldn't be an argument for waiting for any particular like point in the future, like any like it, you know any year you can foresee, but just that you should wait around for some moment when there's like a funding opportunity that seems really important and neglected and so on, and uh, you should expect those to come and go. And like maybe there are some available now, but unless you think like the most important ones ever are available right now, you should you should probably kind of wait around for a better one. 
you want to uh, just respond to potential skeptics in the audience who might be thinking, oh, like once someone's that rich, like actual actually money makes absolutely no difference to, to their welfare? I, I guess if it does actually make no difference, then that does uh, get rid of this argument. But you're, you're just saying, what if it has a tiny effect, then it, then it still, uh, still helps. Right. I would say that it makes sense to have a lot of uncertainty about, you know, how to extrapolate the relationship between spending and, and welfare out, out beyond sort of the range that we've observed. I could imagine someone thinking that consumption would make no difference to welfare to someone with like our standard of living hundreds of years ago. But I do find that additional spending somewhat increases my, my well-being. But anyway, in the face of that uncertainty, all of the value of this strategy comes in the scenarios where, where it turns out that there, there, is, there is a lot that you can do with that much money, even for people so rich. And I think given the uncertainty, pretty much all the value comes from the unlikely case in which there's a lot that we'll learn how to do to create a lot of welfare. So, you know, there, there could be some like future like technology or like completely harmless drug or something, which is expensive to produce, but which kind of produces a lot, a, a lot of, a lot of welfare. And in the face of the uncertainty, it's at least ambiguous which way the argument goes. But I think it, it actually sort of strengthens the case for, for waiting because like there is at least some possibility that we'll, we'll be able to like discover ways to do a lot of good with, with a lot of resources. Okay, so uh, another way of thinking about how your influence grows over time, over time is, is, is not to think just about kind of the absolute amount of money that you kind of have in this ever-growing bank account, but maybe like what share of all global wealth or what share of all global income you command, which if you're trying to say have political influence or you know, buy things of which there's a completely limited number, then uh, it kind of potentially matters more like how much you have relative to other people rather than how much you have in absolute terms. Do you just want to talk about uh, how, how that kind of instance looks, looks different? Yeah, I, I think that's another scenario that's worth considering. And you mentioned Piketty before, who's famous for popularizing the observation that R tends to be greater than G, right? The interest rate tends to be higher than the rate of overall economic growth. The reason for that's related to what I was saying before about the interest rate tending to be higher than the rate at which it gets more expensive to help people. The people's impatience plays into this. For those interested, you feel you know you can you can you can look up Piketty's reasoning or also Google the, the Ramsey formula. But anyway, the fact is that yeah, historically and and theoretically, it seems like as you grow, you'll you'll be growing faster than world wealth on average. And so even though your share of total wealth won't be growing as fast as your absolute wealth, it'll still be growing. And so in these contest like scenarios you'll do better to invest than to try kind of engaging in the contest at the moment. Yeah. Is there any way of maybe quantifying this? I guess uh, I could potentially just throw some numbers into a calculator here where we like imagine what if, you know, uh, R is 2% greater than G and then think about, you know, how much your share of global wealth has increased over a 200 year timescale. Sure. Okay, so yeah, as, as we mentioned earlier, if your kind of absolute average, harmonic average investment returns over that 200-year period, uh, about 7%, then your absolute wealth uh, would increase by about 750,000 over a 200-year period, whereas your, your fraction of like all global wealth would have increased about 52-fold, which is a lot less impressive than 750,000-fold. But nonetheless, I guess if you're gauging in political activism, you'd rather have kind of 50 times as much money relative to everyone else uh, as, as just, well, 1x. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so an example that I found quite neat from the paper was it was the example of kind of the the, the hundred year lease, which I think gives you a sense of how easy it is to like increase the kind of fraction of influence that you, that you have over over the future. So yeah, just to just to explain that the general concept here, it's possible to kind of buy a piece of land and then lease it out to someone else for the next hundred years. So basically, then what you're doing is buying the right to that land from a hundred years onwards. 
Can you just explain how the how the, the price of that is effectively very different than, than buying the, the the land right now? Sure. I mean, it's it's about ten percent of the price. The effective price ends up being about ten percent. So the hundred year lease costs about ninety percent what the freehold costs. Yeah, I I don't think that's that land is necessarily the best long term investment or anything, but it's a good visualization for the ways in which the patient can just sort of bide their time and let the impatient do what they like with the near term and just come to have more say over what happens in the longer term. Obviously, this this reasoning compounds too. So at like a 99% discount, if this relationship persists, then you can buy what happens to a patch of land from 200 years onward till, you know, till the sun, <laughs> sun burns <laughs> it up. Yeah. How come no one's trying to kind of buy a city this way? I'm not sure. Why would someone want to buy a city in particular? I mean, people people do invest, right? Which is kind of kind of similar in some ways, or at least lending is 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 just this for assets in general. You you tell some impatient person or whatever, well, here's some stuff, and you can hold on to it for a while and do what you like with it, and just give me back more stuff later. It seems unlikely that the best portfolio will tend to be a single city, but basically every foundation that's lasted for a long time, of which there are, there are quite a number every sort of long-lasting family trust, maybe you could even count religious institutions. They've, they've all engaged in long-term investments. And so I think that there is that. That's a very polite way of saying they don't do that because it's a bloody stupid idea, Rob. Are there any examples, though, of, I guess, an organization saving money for a very long amount of time and then becoming like much more influential 100 years later than kind of what it was to begin with? Or as just for whatever like practical reason, people haven't really tried, tried this strategy? I think people have tried to implement patient financial behavior in, in various ways, better and worse approximations of the kind of literal the literal model of setting up a fund that lasts a long time. I mentioned religious institutions before, right? They, in some sense, grow their, grow their assets through missionary activity and through actual, the actual purchase of, of assets and the building of structures that are, that are intended to last for a long time. There were a lot of foundations founded in the you know, Gilded Age of the United States, which which have persisted to this day and have grown somewhat. They maybe not quite as much as they would have wanted to, because if they're foundations, they have to disperse at least five percent of their assets every year in the U.S. Though trusts don't have to do that, so one, one could get around that if one thought to set up a trust. There are also some some sort of idiosyncratic examples of attempts to do this literally that have failed. So Benjamin Franklin, well, not failed, I should say, they haven't all been complete failures, but no kind of amazing successes. So Benjamin Franklin put aside some money for the cities of Boston and Philadelphia to be invested for a few hundred years and uh, then used to build schools there. And I think in one of the cities, I think in Philadelphia, the city ended up spending the money after like 100 years. And then in Boston, they invested it in sort of low return municipal bonds and things in the meantime, which ruined the plans a little bit. But, you know, I, I still think it's it's possible that he ended up doing more good than he would have just by spending it at the time. It just wasn't anything astronomical. Wasn't there some Italian family that, that tried to do this where they, they, I guess they realized this strategy may be very early on because they were involved in finance and they wanted to like build a family trust that would just grow in perpetuity and then they'd eventually end up as the most famous family? Interesting. I'm not familiar with the Italian family. I, I know there's uh, there is one Holden, someone with the last name Holden, changed it to Holdeen with two E's. And wanted all the all his Holdeen descendants to <laughs> be very rich, and I think it, the, the trust was supposed to disperse to the Holdeens of the world in a thousand years. And his children ended up like suing the trust after after he died, and and the judge let them have the money. And one argument they made was that this was like a risk to 
to the world because it would like take over the world. <laughs> so that's, yeah, maybe, maybe something of a warning sign. On the other hand, I, I think the, the, the real outright failures have generally been family trusts. Mankiw, the economist has a, yeah, Greg Mankiw has a paper. Yes, R is greater than G. So what? In which he points out that family trusts tend to tend not to, not to last. But these other sorts of institutions, right, foundations and like religious ones, maybe other examples, haven't haven't been such failures and typically haven't even been trying all that hard to really, really last a long time, but who just sort of been aiming at kind of lasting on the scale of like, I mean, I don't know, but they don't seem to have like put like really intense thought into like what happens in a thousand years time or anything like that. So I think we just have like small and. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll look up this example of this Italian family and see whether that's a complete figment of my own imagination, in which case I'll probably edit it out and you won't be hearing this, listeners. Uh, but, <laughs> but, if, but if it does exist, I'll stick up a link to that in the show notes. To what extent should we be somewhat concerned about the idea that, you know, a set of people with a, a particular and maybe narrow set of values is going to be the most patient and then end up accumulating like a really large amount of resources down the road and really sort of control, um, you know, a lot of the the economy, a lot of the world. Yeah. I mean, I I think that is a possibility and it's a risk from the perspective of someone not sharing the, you know, the idiosyncratic values in question. And that's why I think it's, this is an important line of reasoning to think through whoever you are, right? Whatever your values are, whatever you care about, whatever your vision for how society should be, you know, if you don't think through the time in question, right, then you're just sort of leaving, leaving the future on the table. And, you know, whatever, whatever causes you, you care about, or whatever, like, moral theory you endorse uh, says about how, how the world should be, as long as it doesn't incorporate some pure time preference, right? As long as you don't like explicitly reject the idea that you should care about what happens in a long time. Yeah, you, you do have to contend with the fact that if you don't contribute to saving up resources to do it, to, to do what you want in a long time, then, then other people will. So I think there's just no, no escaping this, this question. And uh, people of all kinds should just like collaboratively think about how to, uh, how to spend their philanthropic resources over, over the course of the future. I guess some people also might find the idea feels a little bit cold or heartless in a way because you're potentially just like not contributing to solving the kind of very salient injustices that, that are around today. I guess one thing that might help with that is just imagining like <laughs> trying to like make it more vivid, more salient, like the potential injustices that could be around in hundreds of years time. And the fact that you'll be able to potentially make a huge dent on those by having way more resources. Uh, yeah, do, I guess do you have any comment on that? Yeah, no, I, I think that's exactly right. I think I just want to emphasize that. The example I raised at the beginning about how, from a utilitarian perspective, you can do more good by just like saving up for the like amazing drugs or whatever for the super rich people in the 24th century really was what we said it was, which was this like very handicapped argument about how like, in some sense, the argument can go through even if you put a lot of restrictions on it. But a big part of my own motivation for thinking through this problem as clearly as possible is the thought that there will be all kinds of injustices or like, yeah, immense tragedies that hopefully we will have a role in, in solving in a long time and that we, we shouldn't ignore them in favor of the ones that are present today, not to minimize those today, but just to put as much of a dent in them as, as, as we can, regardless of, of the timescale. All right, let's push on to another kind of different consideration now, which is that mm. potentially over time, we'll actually just find better things to do with the money and not even just buying bizarre luxury goods in 279 years time. Do you want to talk about this, this, this point? When we look back over the last thousand years or whatever, and we wonder whether resources would be better put to philanthropic use by those alive at the time or invested for, for use by ourselves or other seemingly uh, relatively thoughtful philanthropists today, we tend to think that the latter would do more good. So just 
by raw induction, by a sort of outside view, we should defer to our inheritors' decisions on, on this front, right? We should expect that they have more information or have just sort of reflected more on, on what is good or something. Also, we have been learning more about how to do good empirically in a variety of, of domains, right? So the whole field of development economics is relatively new, you know, just sort of a few decades old, and it's already undergone a number of like revolutions of thinking of, you know, how much to prioritize randomized control trials and other methods. And I think we're still improving our ideas on that front. The whole idea of improving the welfare of farmed animals is like a relatively new philanthropic concern. And we're still learning a lot there. And uh, when it comes to how to influence the long term, it's also, you know, a field about which until recently, people haven't given a lot of attention to. And uh, we still seem to be learning a lot. There still seem to be a lot of open questions about, you know, very long run growth and long term trajectories and population and moral values and risks to civilization and so on. So, yeah, both my like inside view of like the, the state of the research and the evidence and, and, and the kind of outside in, induction based view point me in the direction of thinking that people in a while, maybe not, you know, like a like a million years, but people in a while should should pretty robustly be expected to to do more good with resources than than we can today. Yeah, how confident are you that uh, money spent today is better than what a thoughtful person who was like you know able to put in as much time, perhaps as you know the Open Philanthropy Project is today? How they would have spent it in like nineteen sixty or nineteen hundred? I guess it's slightly hard to know what they what they would have spent it on. It's possible that they might have done something you know really impressive to do with you know nuclear weapons or doing research into what things are, are most important. Yeah, I agree. It's ambiguous. I guess I can just report my intuition on on that. But yeah, I mean, I think there might be a little bit of a trick going on when we look back and the, you know, the list that you just gave, right. Was the list that we have now with uh, about what seems best given. What we think they should have. Done, right, 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 right. Given the hindsight. And you can always cherry pick individuals who were actually working on those things at the time and say, Oh, well, if we'd given it to them, then, then they would have, or if they had like been able to keep it as opposed to investing it for, for our sake, they would have done more good. But the question, the problem is we don't know who we are among the people today, right? Whether we're, we're the, Maybe we're the idiots. <laughs> right, right, right. Maybe we're the people in 50 years' time that, that are like, you know, people look back and say, oh, like, you know. <laughs> Why did they think that was a good idea? Right, right, right. Like, but obviously people 50 years ago, say the people of 2069, could have could have done more good than us today in 2069 because, you know, the, now the, the Joe Schmo who, yeah. who did the thing that now in hindsight seems great what, knew, knew what he was doing. Yeah. Just to make the counter argument a little bit, it does seem possible that in the 50s or 60s or 70s, an altruistic philanthropist with a really global or long-term perspective, you know, preventing nuclear war, like actually might have been among their top priorities and was something that foundations at the time worked on. The elimination of smallpox was another big philanthropic priority, or at least altruistic priority, that might end up having some longer-term effects. So there is some reason to think that people in the past may have made quite good use of the money. So yeah, I agree. There's arguments on both sides of this question. It's hard to put a number on it or anything like that. Yeah. So I guess in my mind, at least, it seems like we've come up with lots of you know really important, crucial considerations in philanthropy over the last couple of decades. It's like not many people think about existential risks. Now we think about that. We think about like you know very long term future much more than people did before. I guess things like the simulation hypothesis from from Nick Bostrom, which I guess it's not clear that that actually changes what we ought to do very much, but it seems like it could could potentially be a big deal. Are there any other kind of crucial considerations that stand out? And maybe. We should should we expect to have kind of big revolutions in in how we think about how to do good over the, over the next couple of decades? 
Yeah, it, it seems clear to me that we should expect about as many revolutions as you think we've had over the past few decades. I don't think there was any big milestone, any big finish line that, that, that we crossed. And I, I've become an adult now. Phil. Right, so right. It's, uh, it's basically all over now. <laughs> I think we've figured it out. <laughs> at, least, at least I won't change my mind. <laughs> right. Some of it is in favor of thinking that we're likely to change our minds in the future is an experience that I had that I think you know, a lot of other people in the effective altruist community have had of, you know, a decade ago having very different priorities than today. So there are, you know, I think a lot of people also have the experience of giving mostly to global public health and anti-poverty work 10 years ago, and then heard arguments for working on uh, interventions geared more towards the long-term future, geared more toward risk reduction recently. And so if you have a ton of people who made that change over the last decade, um, you should feel pretty unsure about what you might learn in the next few decades. Yeah, exactly. Obviously, this argument can't run forever because, you know, th there's going to be some sort of stabilization of, of views after which it, you, you do get to feel confident that you're, that you're doing something you won't come to regret. Maybe if we haven't come up with any crucial considerations after 100 years or something, then we should go ahead and start giving. For formalizing what you know what exactly that number is that's that's the domain of an academic field called optimal stopping someone wrote a popular book on on this stuff called uh, algorithms to live by the author you, you had him on the podcast yeah uh brian christian brian yeah, christian uh, right. one of our most popular episodes actually oh really yeah. so um I'd, I'd love to see work kind of yeah seeing how optimal stopping models apply to the the question of like timing philanthropy and learning but in any event, just in, intuitively, it seems like we've been coming up with them quickly enough, recently enough, that it's just obviously not that we, we haven't crossed any sort of finish line. So, so far, we've got just the absolute amount of money you have is increasing at a hell of a clip. Then we've got your fraction of all global wealth is increasing pretty fast. And then we've got, we actually have very good reason to think that in the future, we'll be wiser and have better ideas about how to spend the money. I guess a fourth consideration is that there might be, you know, moments in the future that are just more important where, you know, even setting aside what you know, there's just going to be greater opportunities to, to have an influence. Do you want to, I guess you, you call this kind of hinginess, although uh, so, some people are not huge fans of the term and maybe we should find something, something that sounds a little bit better. But Yeah, so Derek Parfit, the late great philosopher, made the claim in, in this book in 2011 that we were living at the hinge of history, right? And th this is a claim that right now, the actions that we take will determine whether we survive as a species, you know, whether we misuse nuclear weapons and other dangerous technologies or use them to last a very long time and perhaps even colonize space. So, yeah, that's an argument for now, plus or minus like a few hundred years or something, being being a really important episode. But it doesn't seem to me like this binary thing, whether, whether you're either at the hinge or you're not. It seems like Looking back through history, one can identify peaks and valleys to this to, to this property of being an important time. You know, some key battle in, in World War II was a, was a very pivotal moment. So yeah, just out of deference to that to that phrase, I like to call this hinginess. But that's 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 the idea. And likewise, looking looking ahead, one might wonder whether instead of spending now, we should be saving up for that key battle in World War III or something, or or the Constitutional Convention after World War III that will, you know, changing one letter of which will, will be, <laughs> you know, baked into the, the world government that lasts for however, however long. And I think likewise, one, one might try to estimate, you know, how big those peaks and valleys are from looking back over the past few centuries or something. But it's funny because other people have noticed that they were living at really, really important, really hingy times in the past as well. So there's this great quote from John Adams, right, that 
he foresaw that as he was helping to write the U.S. Constitution, that he was setting up institutions that would sort of govern a large part of the world for, for thousands of years, and that would influence the institutions that followed them. And so far, it seems like he was right in a big way. So I, I, th- I think it's, it's probably a bit of a stretch to say that like 2011 or like 2019 or something is like the hinge. And so we've got we've to go ahead and spend right now. And we should be more open to the possibility of uh, unforeseen important moments in, in coming centuries or whatever. And I guess to be clear, when we think of kind of hingy moments, uh, pivotal moments in this kind of context, we're not just thinking of like an election that might affect the next four or five years, but things like constitutions where it could potentially last hundreds of years, or I suppose conceivably, you know, tracks that we could put humanity on that would just like last indefinitely as long as kind of humanity and its descendants continue. So we could be talking millions or billions of years here. So this could be like really crucial moments. Yeah, I think that's right. It's often hard to know just how long-lasting a given change will be, right? Because, you know, a constitution or, or a religion or something can, in subtle ways, shift the, the thoughts and behaviors of the people setting up the institutions and value systems and so on that will replace them and, and, and so on. So um, I, don't, I don't know if there's, like, a really obvious w- way to parse them, but when you come across, like, you know, different opportunities for long-lasting impact or whatever, but the aim ultimately is at doing as much good as possible over, like, the very, very long term. And, yeah, explicitly not about just winning an election that could very likely just uh, be reversed in a few years' time. Yeah, so I guess we've got some examples there of, I guess, wars, yeah, writing constitutions. Are there other kind of events that might be particularly hingy that we should have in mind when we're kind of thinking of this concept? Yeah, uh, perhaps the development of technologies that could have gone one way or another, like, you know, nuclear weapons maybe could have, I'm not sure, I'm not an expert in any particular technology, but the introduction of, yeah, or just like the development of ideas. So one might think that uh, the axial age, as it's sometimes called, the age in which most of the world's big religions were started, sort of 2,000 years ago, plus or minus a thousand years or something. It was a really important time in shaping all of the sort of moral intuitions of, of the people that followed, even if they're no longer practicing members of, of the religions in question. So there was this era when I guess it was Christianity, Islam, Judaism, Buddhism, maybe? Uh, uh, yeah, all kind it, of, that's right. All kind of got going around that, that era. Yeah. Toward the earlier parts of it, you know, you've had like Zoroastrianism and various schools of Hinduism as well. Yeah, I guess... Confucianism, all the Chinese philosophies. Huh, interesting. Yeah, do people have a theory for why, I guess, maybe writing was kind of taking off then? Yeah, I think it's something like that. I think, I mean, I, I would imagine that all of these guesses are rather speculative, but it's something like once societies get very large scale, there's like a big it's like cultural evolutionary advantage to having systems that can keep everyone following the same sort of sets of rules and coordinating and, and, and so on, that, that there aren't when societies are small and people can just sort of live by family trust and tribal intuitions or whatever. And then there was some period of time after the agricultural revolution when in various parts of the world, societies got big enough that this became a big advantage. And so different ones caught on in different places. Yeah. So something like that. So I guess we can kind of envision going to kind of the early Christian conferences in kind of the year, the year 40, uh, you know, or the, the formation count, of the, the Catholic the, the, Church the or something. The Council of Jerusalem, yeah. Right. Do, do, do you know anything about that? I, I don't really know that much about the, you know, very early Christian history. Sure. So questions about like, perhaps relatively small seeming things like whether Christians would have to be circumcised or whatever were, were decided at some of these councils and then, you know, affected like billions of, of anatomies for, <laughs> uh, for, for the subsequent future. So a lot of this stuff just wasn't revised later on. It was it really got stuck in. Yeah. Yeah. That's an important point. So for a moment to be really, to really resemble a hinge, right. Be really, really 
pivotal, it has to have some element of lock-in. So you, you make the change and it lasts for a long time. And I think an argument for this this religious age being particularly moment is that religions do have sort of an, an endurance to them, right? Like once the rule gets set, it's like it has some sanctity. And so it's not going to just be, be, be changed willy-nilly. I guess people also, they lose track of the reason why the decision was made in this kind of case. So it like becomes hard to revise because you can't just like see all the drafts and see like the, you know, the comments thread on the Google Doc and realize that it was kind of could have gone easily either way. And there wasn't really good reason. So that seems to be something with religions in particular. That Yeah, interesting. That that might have something to do with it. Some religions seem to actually have done a pretty impressive job of tracking all the mm. commentary or at least a big portion of it. Yeah, interesting. So something that seems to be the case with kind of all of these examples so when, when we look back is that we can be like, oh, it was like this potentially quite narrow period of time in this like specific location, which was which was very hingy, which like sometimes differs, I think, from people talk about, oh, you know, this century is going to be like especially hingy. They're talking about like a very broad amount of time in a very broad amount of space. And maybe what they really, maybe what they mean to, to, to still manage is like, well, there'll be important moments in this century, like, but like maybe maybe there'll be only one year in particular that's, that's especially important. But that does seem to potentially change it because if you think it, there is a difference between it's like it's this century and it will be the year 2057 because then you'd be like, well, we definitely, we should be like saving now if it's going to be 2057. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's an important point. So there's been some like online discussion about whether we should really think that this is like the most important century ever or something, or the next few centuries of the most important time ever. And as far as I can tell, in a lot of people's minds, this, this is an important crux of the question of, of whether to try having impact now or doing something really broad-based, like saving money for a long time or just kind of growing a, a movement a movement of reflective philanthropists that isn't centered on any particular project, but just aims to sort of grow over time. And I, I don't I don't think that's quite right. I mean, even if so to go back to that Parfit quote, he he says if we if we navigate through the next few centuries, right, then things will go really well. And if not, then we'll blow ourselves up. And that's what makes these few centuries the hinge of history. A few centuries is is a long time. It's much longer than most people are currently thinking about when to when to sort of allocate their resources. And so, yeah, I mean, I would still advocate investing if if you thought that you know that there, we were just kind of on this high plateau of of hinginess for the next four hundred years because you would just have way more resources to spend in in your near three hundred fifty or something if if you invest then and and that would that would do way more good. So so the argument for for committing a lot of resources now really depends not on these few centuries being kind of a hingy episode of history, but on like like this year or the next 10 years or something being extremely disproportionately influential over the future or just kind of like especially rich with opportunities to do good. Yeah. So if even just like 2030 is, you know, somewhat more hingy than 2020, well, like we may have been able to double the amount of resources just by investing it by then. And then yeah, also yeah. potentially get this benefit that, you know, it's like 2x as chaotic or 2x is as, as hingy as, as this year. It like looks, looks like a pretty good deal. And in which case, you know, save rather than give. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if chaotic is exactly the same as hinginess, but um, anyway, yeah. I, know, I, know well, I know what you mean. Yeah. What's, well, what is the relationship between kind of chaoticness and, and hinginess? It does seem like you need it to be possible for things to go off in like very different directions. And sometimes things not being locked in, like normal institutions not functioning to just like all push us towards one particular direction can make for hinginess, right? The distinction is just that the path has to be very sensitive to the initial conditions, right? Mm. So that's what makes it seem like chaos, but it has to be predictable as well, right? Yeah. So it can't oh. be a butterfly effect thing where... Mm. So it has to be it has to be like chaotic enough that things can be moved, but not so chaotic that it's just like you can't get any traction at all because it's unforeseeable what what effects actions will have. Yeah, yeah. 
All right, so we'll put up a link to this really neat blog post that Will McCaskill, who's also been on the show, wrote about this question of whether the next century is likely to be among the most pivotal of like all of the centuries that, that, that are yet to come. And he kind of makes this argument that it's very unlikely that this century of, is of special importance. And kind of one of the arguments that he puts forward is, you know, humanity could continue for another million centuries. And so kind of your prior that is kind of, before you'd even looked at the question, you might think, well, maybe the odds are only, you know, one in a million. And then if you try to collect evidence on what, well, does this century look especially pivotal? Thinking about what other pivotal moments there might be, you know, far, far down the line in hundreds of thousands of years time. This doesn't seem like super compelling to think that this century is, is like so much more compelling than, say, the point at which we, you know, start colonizing the solar system or leave the solar system or put together a world government, that, that, that kind of thing. And I guess in particular, he seemed quite concerned that we would have this big bias towards thinking that the moment that we're in is especially pivotal because it's so clear to us the ways that it could be pivotal and maybe just also a bit of like natural human narcissism. And so even if you look around and think, oh, this time looks especially pivotal, you should be really skeptical of that, especially given that it's such a hard question to answer. You should always worry, well, actually, this is just kind of a perverse aspect of kind of my perspective on the on, on the world around me. And and so you would never kind of be able to update that far away from your base prior of like, it's a one in a million chance. So maybe you could get up to it's a one in a thousand chance, or maybe even it's a one in a hundred chance, but we should never really be confident that this century is going to be, or like, we should never be confident that this is definitely the one. Yeah, I mean, I... I'm sure there's some amount of evidence that that should lead one to conclude that, you know, this is the most important century ever, but it would have to be a lot. It would have to overcome that that prior. And we should be careful to, you know, guard against the the biases that might push us in, in the direction of thinking that we're more important than we really are. That said, the argument for spending doesn't really rely on this being the most important century, because I think there is some background rate at which invested assets will you know, like do run the risk of getting stolen or your inheritors drifting from the values that you would have wanted, you wanted the resources to be put to. So I think for practical purposes, you just need to say that, you know, this is the most important one out of the next like 10 or something for it to be worth spending now rather than in a long time. But but even so, I, I think it's just like uh, not clear to me that this is the most important century out of the next 10. So yeah, interesting. I have to admit, I uh, so the, this is like a, it was a very nice blog post by Will. And then the comments were also like very good for, for internet comment sections. There was a few uh, really good yeah, points agree, there. Yeah. yeah, by I think Toby Ord and, and, and Carl Shulman, maybe Greg Lewis as well, where I think they offered some pretty good counter arguments uh, and like reasons why we should have uh, attach a like much higher prior probability to kind of early centuries being pivotal than, than later ones, which would mean that, you know, maybe your prior on this century being the most important of all the ones to come might be more like 1% to begin with. And then, you know, if you look around and think, oh, wow, there's like such important things going on. And there's like such, such great opportunities to affect the trajectory of things forever uh, that, you know, maybe you could end up with you know, a 10% probability, all things considered uh, of this, of this century being uh, you know, an especially good opportunity to, or like that there will be moments in this century that there are especially good opportunities to, to have impact. And I guess that's maybe where I come down right now, although it's something that I really need to read more about and kind of evaluate these arguments. Yeah, I also need to think about this more. But I would just say again that those seem like good arguments for not attaching a totally flat prior, right? So you alluded to, to one pretty pretty straightforward argument, which is that earlier centuries can influence what happens in later ones. So you know, there's kind of no, no way that the very last one is going to have that much room for, for impact because mm. everything's about to end. But it doesn't really seem to be a strong reason to think that, that there's just like way more for a, a patient philanthropist to do now than there will be in like a thousand years time. Yeah. Also, if you have, you know, an existential catastrophe in any given century, then, you know, that means that future centuries can't affect the long-term future at all. And so some 
base rate at which you know, at least one force is making century after century like a little bit less energy. Yeah, I think that's true. This might be a good time, though, to bring up perhaps a somewhat subtle point that that's kind of, I think, central to, to all this, which is that at least some of the forces making a given year or century, you know, hingier or like making it um, seem more favorable to spend now than to, than to wait a year should be expected to be reflected in the interest rate. So for instance, if the risk of an existential catastrophe is very high and everyone knows that, say it's 1% per year for a while, right? Then on the one hand, that's the reason to spend now. But on the other hand, that's a reason for everyone to demand 1% more or something, you know, resources next year in exchange for, for, for one this year. And if everyone's kind of seeing things the same way, then, then you should be back to being kind of indifferent between spending now and spending next year, except for that just like impatience bit, which would kind of still leave the interest rate even, even higher than like what would be justified on the basis of the extinction risk. And I would say that to, to maybe a lesser extent, the, the same things are true with respect to other sources of uh, lock-in. Right. So if we're on the cusp of a world government and like, you know, everyone's fighting over what what will be written into its constitution, you're going to have a lot of people trying to borrow. Right. So that they can hire their lobbyists and, and sort of, you know, fling them at that effort. And so the interest rate will be very high. And so it, it's still sort of not clear whether you can do more by spending now or by waiting. So that's kind of what theory would say. But is that what we've seen historically? Like during the Cuban Missile Crisis, was there a sudden like spike in interest rates? And, you know, during World War II, did like interest rates go up a whole lot? Or when the US Constitution was being written? Maybe well, I think they did in World War II. Okay, yeah. Right, and there's all this effort to like get people to buy war bonds and stuff. Yeah, right, right. But I think the key is, I mean, we'll get to this a bit later when we talk about the, you know, the timing of career efforts, right? But different kinds of resources will sort of be able to exact different different amounts of influence at different times. So even though we've been talking in broad strokes about hinginess as if it's like this single, this single thing that, that fluctuates over time, that might be true sort of broadly speaking, but if you look at like, you know, particular, like there'll be particular assets that are like hard to convert into others very quickly. And so like from time to time, some might be temporarily much more influential than others. And during the Cuban Missile Crisis, in some sense it was like pivotal, but like it doesn't seem that money could have done a lot to change how it went. It was more like, like U.S. presidents and like other world leaders, right? Yeah. And so like, yeah, there's not really like a market for those. But if there had been, I would certainly have expected the interest rate to have been very high around the Cuban Missile Crisis. Yeah, that makes sense. I guess there's this other reason that you might expect the interest rate to go up, which is that people are worried about dying. And so they're like, well, now I'm going to throw a party, like cash out my investments because, you know, there may not be a tomorrow. Yeah. So if it was known at the time during the Cuban Missile Crisis, just how risky it was, then you should have expected interest rates to spike around then. And there, yeah, I think it wasn't known. So interest rates didn't go up that much. And I think even if people had known, even if people had thought there's a 20% chance, they're all like about to go up and smoke and my investments won't be worth anything because there won't be a stock market. I do wonder whether there really would have been such an increase in you know, asset prices would have changed all that much. Because like, you're like a rich person at that time. What are you really going to do with all the money? You like cash it all out and then you, there's just no way to spend it fast enough over that like period of a week. You're like throw like an epic party. You don't even have time to organize it. There's like, there's nothing you can really do to, to blow your money that quickly. I think Alex Tabarrok has a uh, nice blog post where he explains why it is that during like seemingly very risky global moments, we don't see that much of a shift in asset prices. One thing is that they kind of all become worth less simultaneously. So it's like the relative prices of different assets don't matter too much. And he's like, well, but you could just go and like turn it into consumption right, right now. But right, then he's right. like, but well, what are you really going to do? Uh, huh. yeah, at least over a period of a week, right? Yeah, that's interesting. I haven't seen that blog post, but mm. I, I would say, I guess, 
I mean, yeah, talking about the time scale of a week seems like it's sort of pushing the the theory a bit. But yeah, I would be surprised if like during like a, a few years of, of really high risk or something, you didn't see some shift toward toward present consumption. Yeah, and I guess like his model, I guess would support that as well because there's just much more you can do to spend money over a couple of years. Yeah, if you think yeah, that yeah. you're like quite likely to die in a way that's just like not practical over just a period of days. Yeah. All right, let's move on from this question of uh, what's the most hingy moment to another general topic that I'm I'm not quite sure quite what what to make of, but. Let's just say that we're very uncertain about like what will be the growth rate of the you know, global economy, what will be the interest rate, like when will the most hingy moment be? It seems like we should you know have some diversification here, have some kind of portfolio of different strategies. Are there kind of arguments that if we're uncertain, then that pushes us in favor of wanting to to wait quite a long time? Have you have you thought about that that side at all? Sure, right. So if we're uncertain about, for example, what investment returns will be because the returns compound, most of the value is in that like tale of optimistic possibilities where returns are kind of surprisingly high. So it's much better to invest when there's a 50% chance that returns will be zero for a few hundred years and a 50% chance that they'll be 10% per year for a few hundred years than to invest when you know they're going to be 5% per year for a hundred years because 10% per year is just so much more impact. And likewise, if you're not sure what the expropriation rate will be, what the value drift rate will be, what the rate at which we'll be able to come up with the sorts of institutions and technologies to really stably fund causes over over long time periods will, will be. Most of the value is in the cases where that rate is low. And so if it turns out that the rate is close to zero, you're you're able to, you know, set up that 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 trust that does good over over like thousands of years time. And if it turns out that it's high, then it just dies in a few years. But the expected lifespan there is still much higher than if you know that it's a moderate number. So yeah, in the face of uncertainty about these parameters, it turns out that the expected value of investing is uh, is higher than it might intuitively seem. So if, in as much as you have uncertainty about these things, the higher variance increases the value of the saving strategy relative to the to the have impact now strategy. Yeah. And I suppose because like the, the have impact now strategy doesn't have this kind of compounding aspect to it, which makes uncertainty like uh, appealing. Yeah, in general, in general. I mean, there, there might be some some intervention you could enact now about which you know you're not sure whether it'll the effects will just peter out or whether they'll compound or something and then uh, then then, then it'd be some symmetry there yeah when you think about diminishing returns and the fact that in some of those big win scenarios where the money isn't expropriated and returns are really high that those will be the same worlds where you have you know tons of resources and so maybe your marginal dollars less valuable oh sure yeah that's certainly something that's built into the, the model as I'm trying to formalize it. I would say that the asymmetry consideration holds there as well. So if you're not sure whether returns diminish sharply or or only very gradually, then most of the values in, in the scenario where they diminish gradually. But in general, yeah, I mean, most most efforts, you can be pretty confident they'll have at least some degree of, of diminishing returns. And that's the reason to consider diversifying across strategies. So if you think, you know, it, it just might be really important to have at least some resources going towards some some cause like you want at least one lobbyist caring about the very long term at that at that you know post World War Three constitutional convention. Then having a second isn't quite so important. Then you're going to want to put uh, some some resources toward some fund that aims to make use of these important moments as they come along. But then you know, likewise, efforts in the present to reduce the risks of dangerous technologies in the present or make use of the the lowest hanging charitable fruit uh, available right now. Yeah, th- those are going to have diminishing returns, and so you're you're going to probably want to diversify. Also seems like diminishing returns in the future will only be 
a really big factor if you yourself or sort of your community is a big proportion of all of the work going into the areas that you're working on. It's possible that if you know, the whole globe is like focusing on the same thing that like we think is you know crucial at the time, then diminishing returns on the scale of you know whatever trust you set up is like not going to be very large. Yeah, I think that's right. And I think this, you know, harkens back to another sort of parameter uncertainty, which is that we don't know to what extent future players, right, future governments and philanthropists and so on, will care about the sorts of things that are like maybe a little idiosyncratic at the moment, but that we spend a disproportionate amount of time thinking about. Like the the well being of animals or people in the distant future, whatever like a kind of utilitarian like approach to philanthropy or something in that direction. So there's in some sense a risk to the project of the fund, that these cause areas will, will get very popular after a while, and then the, the fund will not be doing so much good because the returns will have diminished. But that seems far from certain. And so most of the value is in the scenario in which marginal returns are still very high. So yeah, we've been through kind of five considerations here. Is there kind of anything else that you want to want to add, like arguments in favor of waiting to have an impact before we move on to kind of counter arguments to these and reasons to, to, to go hastily? Yeah, I think one last point is that just as one can make arguments for and against, and you know, in particular for now being an important time to spend, there's also a, a sense in which we should perhaps think that now is an important, somewhat uniquely important time to save. And that's that at the moment, as we discussed, most people are quite impatient. And that means that, yeah, interest rates are relatively high and one can buy that future patch of land, right? And one can really yeah, buy, in some sense, the, the right to determine what happens to, you know, a, a lot of the Earth's resources well into the future from the, the current owners of those resources who don't care so much about what happens to them, right? You can just lend at a high interest rate. That can't really persist forever, right? As time goes on, you would expect patient actors to take advantage of this opportunity and come to own more and more of the world's resources. And um, if you just you sort of play that forward, you know, ultimately, you, you might expect everything or like something approaching 100% of the world's assets to belong to the patient. And when that happens, this this opportunity will be gone forever, right? So that strikes me as, a, yeah, a reason to, to really think that, that this too might be a fleeting opportunity. Yeah. So I guess you're saying that kind of we have this brief moment in time, or at least of, of the time remaining, when we might be able to like take advantage of this opportunity. And if we wait a couple hundred years, it might be gone. We might have like, yeah, forever given up the chance to save and have a much larger influence later on. That's right. I guess that seems slightly odd because you think it's kind of interest rates in the past, at least since we started having lending, have kind of always been high. So maybe you're saying this is like a special moment in that it's like, this is maybe the, the last window to get in on this opportunity. It's been around for like 5,000 years, but it's so, that, so then it would be like, it's, it's a bit of an interesting claim to say, well, but it's going to disappear. Right. Yeah, that, that is a good point. I mean, I would say that what needs to happen is institutions need to be stable enough, right, for like property rights to be secure for long enough for the patient really to be able to take advantage of this opportunity. And if it's the case that someone in ancient Greece or whatever could have tried this, but then would have just sort of gotten gotten pillaged by the Persians a few years later and so on, then like it would still have been a, a high expected value strategy, right? But interest rates would have just been like really, really high because you get pillaged every few years. Mm -hmm. And the expected lifespan of these of these efforts would have been very short, right? And so we just w wouldn't really have expected any of them to last. But now interest rates are lower, property rights are more secure, things are, things are a lot more stable. And it could be that they get much more stable, right? Like 
if nothing goes too far wrong with the US and China or whatever, like we could be on the brink of an era in which foundations, just like American foundations have managed to last for, for centuries. Yeah, that efforts of this kind could could just like last for, for 500 years or something. And then they really would start coming to own a, a like substantial fraction of the world's assets and stuff. So I, I wouldn't say this is all that likely or obvious or whatever, but it just seems like a possibility worth considering. Right? Like maybe we are kind of in like, like coming somewhat near the end of, of the, the, the era when, when this is possible. Yeah, interesting. I guess this is kind of an aside, but I've seen papers arguing that people are inclined to massively overestimate the real rate of interest or the real return on capital because they often look at stock markets that still exist today and they tend to ignore like the Russian stock market and the Argentinian stock market and the German stock market, like many of which went to zero. Yeah, so there's kind of this, this survivorship bias that you get. And if you like include those, then the real return on investments goes much down. I mean, I suppose you might think, well, the 21st century will be more stable because it seems like we've had fewer conflicts. But I guess there's also, you know, always a risk of nuclear war that will put a lot of stock markets down. To zero. Yeah, so that is a good point. For the toy numbers I use in, in the paper that, the, that we discussed, I don't use that, that 7% number from the US stock market because I, I think it is to some extent subject to the survivorship bias and, and so on. And um, in fact, returns have been declining and you know, growth has been declining, at least in the developed world. But um, on the other hand, there are opportunities to earn above market returns, which one can take advantage of if one is sufficiently patient or willing to yeah, willing to tolerate like volatility and so on, because, you know, one's, one's aiming to invest for a long time, right? So you can kind of invest in highly can leveraged ride, assets. And, you can ride out the, the highs and lows much more than someone who's saving for a time and can. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also just if you're, if you're sufficiently big, you can invest in certain, like you have certain investment opportunities with, with some fixed costs getting into that, that like smaller players don't have access to. So if we're thinking about like what the community of patient philanthropists as a whole perhaps should do, right? What OpenFill should do or something, you might expect them to earn even like higher than than the stock market returns on average over the long run. Like like US university endowments have historically done. So I'm not sure how all these considerations push on balance, but yeah, I mean I think the reasoning goes through even even with substantially less than seven percent returns. All right. So I feel like we've done a pretty pretty good job here for the last hour of kind of laying out the, the reasons in favor of waiting to have an impact. So let's turn now to kind of arguments in favor of having a greater sense of urgency about, about having a, having an impact. And it might, might be convenient to kind of split this into two different sections. So one will be like counter arguments to what we've been talking about so far. And then maybe we can move on to kind of independent freestanding arguments in favor of trying to, trying to do stuff right away. Sound good? Sure. All right. Yeah. So I guess a counter argument that probably a lot of people have been shouting into their iPhones or podcasting software has been that uh, you could potentially have a lot of impact now by kind of building a movement or recruiting people or like spreading ideas, like do, engaging in advocacy that kind of grows the amount of resources that are focused on the things that you're interested in. And of course, it's like, seems better to start building a movement sooner because you get this kind of compounding growth that might be well above the kind of 7% or 5% or whatever that you can earn on the stock market. What do, what do you kind of have to say to people who are thinking that? Yeah, I think that's a really good point. In fact, yeah, in this in, in this write-up we keep referring to, I, I do try to make it clear that that by investment, I, I, I really am explicitly including things like fundraising and at least certain kinds of movement building, which have the same effect of like turning resources now, not into good done now, but into more resources next year with which good will be done. I would be... Just a little careful to note that this has to be the sort of movement building and advocacy work that really does look like like fundraising in the sense that you're not just putting resources, more resources toward the cause next year, right? But toward the whole mindset of either 
giving to the cause or investing to give more in two years time to the cause, right? You might spend all your money and get all these recruits who are like passionate about the cause that you're, that you're trying to fund um, next year. And then they want to do something. But then they just do it all next year. The fools. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. And I don't know exactly how, how like high fidelity in this respect movement building tends to be, or like yay movement building in particular um, has been. Yeah. So that's one caveat. I guess another one is that when you're actually investing, you're generally creating new resources, right? You're actually like building the factories or whatever. Whereas when you're just doing fundraising you're, you're, or what movement building, you're just diverting resources from like where they otherwise would have gone. Redistributing them from some efforts to others. Yeah. And so you have to think that what people otherwise would have done with the resources in question is of like negligible value compared to what, what they'll do after they've after the funds have been put in your pot. And you might think that if you just kind of look at like what people are spending their money on the world as a whole. I mean, you might not, but you, you, but you might. And if you do, it might seem like this is a safe assumption to make, but the sorts of people you're most likely to <laughs> recruit, right, are the ones who probably were like most inclined to do the sort of thing that you that you wanted anyway, kind of in, in their own, you know, on their own. So I think it, it's probably, my, my intuition is that it's easy to overestimate the Real, real returns to advocacy and movement building in this respect. But I haven't, I haven't actually like looked through any detailed numbers on this. It's just a caveat I would raise. How do you think about changing the sort of character or trajectory of the movement that you're concerned about as opposed to just sort of making it bigger? Hmm. I suppose, I haven't thought about that explicitly, but I suppose it would just, like a simple model of that might be that if you just change the direction it's headed in and in such a way that kind of multiplies everything they do by some by some factor, right? If you kind of like make everything that they do twice as effective or like 1% more effective, then it, it kind of like multiplies all their resources by 1% times that diminishing returns number, you know, we <laughs> discussed earlier. And then and then it proceeds from there. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I definitely feel the force of the intuition that this is a good thing to do, right? Like I think that to some extent, the effective altruism movement might have been over-prioritizing spending rather than rather than investment uh, you know even like even broadly speaking investment like movement building and so on and i hope that i'm kind of improving people's thoughts about that question and, and thereby kind of multiplying the effectiveness of the movement as a whole by by some extent so in a sense you're in furious agreement with the people who are saying oh we should work on like advocacy or movement building at least for a particular kind of building a movement or promoting ideas that is <laughs> building a movement that then just spends like more time building itself even more or, or like focuses in, in large part on that to just like keep on getting these compounding returns. But that does, yeah, you can imagine what this looks like in 10 years time, which is it's like you're turning into some kind of multi-level marketing scheme or some kind of Ponzi scheme where just all that anyone does is promote the ideas. And then, the, and then when everyone's like, oh, should we have an impact? They're like, no, don't have an impact. Like we just have to build the thing. Wouldn't we then kind of need to have, have people actually doing useful things in order, or like instrumentally maybe in order to like, promote the ideas in order just to just avoid looking like a ridiculous group of people and also to like actually find out whether it's an idea worth promoting at all or whether you should move on to something else. Sure. I think um, the question is just about the rate at which one should be spending and sort of picking that like low hanging fruit for, for impact or for learning. Yeah. Um, so like what's the right balance? Yeah, exactly. I'm not, I'm not saying that it should be all about, all about investing. Though, I mean, there are cases in which it, it should literally just be investing if, if like the returns are high enough and if enough other people are picking the fruit that you would have picked. Mm. Yeah, there, I mean, it's, it'll never really be, I mean, if people are thoughtful about it, it'll never really be a Ponzi scheme, right? The model does close. There comes a time when you're big enough that I guess the, the there's, there's no easy to, ways to grow anymore or you're plateauing out. 
Yeah, well, 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 you could be plateauing, but it could also just be that um, because of the diminishing returns to spending, even if you could still grow it, like grow your asset 7% by waiting another year, you'll be growing your impact some tiny fraction mm-hmm. of that. And so it actually becomes best to start to start spending. Yeah. So it's just one of those things that unfortunately might like kind of look like a Ponzi scheme for a little while, but wouldn't wouldn't literally be one. That said, yeah, I mean, I, I guess I place some weight on the consideration you raised that it would look bad and that that counts for something. But I don't intuitively place a lot of weight on it because I think part of the whole like brand appeal of, of effective altruism in particular is that, you know, it's like, oh, we're the people willing to do the thing that the number said was was best rather than what what kind of looked best on a like 30 second glance. And, you know, none of the reasoning is going to be secret. You know, I mean, if it turns if, if this is what you know a lot of people end up doing and, and people ask why. Then there'll be a link Show to a paper. The paper. There'll be a link to a, an online little tool, right? Which we'll, we'll link to, and you can all play around with if you like to clarify your own thoughts about the rate at which you think patient philanthropists should be investing versus spending. Maybe uh, some three D visual, you know, diagrams. Maybe a, <laughs> a virtual reality headset in ten years that'll let you. I mean, once the idea is communicated, I think if it's if it's true, it'll be compelling, and it won't it won't seem it won't seem fishy. Yeah, well, I think it definitely will seem fishy. I mean, I, I guess maybe I'm just a bad person in the effective altruism community because I feel like I'd be very concerned about a group that was dedicating like almost all of its resources just to self-promotion. You'd worry that it was like going to be like very impractical or that you like, I don't know, you build a bunch of people who are like very into this kind of theoretical model of like when to have impact, but like wouldn't actually really know how to accomplish stuff. And it would, at some point it would break down, like the right ideas wouldn't be transmitted. I guess also it's just like the outside view is that groups that look like this are almost like almost all ways in the past have been scammers. So yeah, I'll definitely have some like concerns and I might want to like try to create a thing that was similar, but like did invest something in like trying to do, do good right away. Yeah. So like I said, there will be that like low hanging fruit for learning opportunities and so on, which, which you should actually pick as you go along. And yeah, I think uh, maybe I should put more weight on that, that outside view consideration as well, but yeah, just make, make, we shouldn't just be like, just, you know, dictated by it. Yeah. PR concerns. To be honest, maybe this, maybe what I'm saying isn't true. Cause uh, I remember back when I was first finding out about effective altruism and 80,000 hours and all that kind of thing, I was very impressed with the fact that they were thinking about this timing issue and were like open to the idea of saving money for extremely long periods of time. And that was kind of a, a hot issue in the community at the time. Although, yeah, I suppose I might have been disturbed if that was actually what was happening. Then just everything was going into the bank account. <laughs> Would you really want to know who the trustees are of this bank account? Yeah, like your prior on some like community that is just getting like richer and richer and richer, <laughs> um, eventually just giving away all of the resources and using it altruistically is like for most people probably incredibly low. So like I don't know, doing some work sooner just to like demonstrate the fact that this actually is a community that like cares about these things might you know be pretty important i guess a huge endowment might also kind of attract predators who would then try to take it over because they would see an opportunity to grab a whole lot of resources that are just sitting there yeah that that is an important consideration which should just be built into the model i think right like maybe the expropriation rate isn't constant but grows with the size of the fund on the other hand i'm not super sure about that i've i've heard a lot of people raise that point and point to some you know (laughs) historical examples of large large funds that have gotten expropriated or whatever but Seems like you could always fish in it if that was the case, just split it into two whenever it gets to a particular size. Yeah, that's that's one point. Another one is maybe you could just you have more to spend on preventing getting expropriated, mm-hmm. right? Or even just kind of on like, I don't know, hiring mechanism design <laughs> theorists to think about how to avoid, you know, value drift in some in some way or yeah. legal scholars to f- make it easier for people to sue the fund if they don't abide by their original objectives and things like that. So um 
this isn't to sweep this under the rug. It's like very worth considering. I, I just don't know exactly which direction it ultimately points in. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll talk about the kind of yeah risks involved in trying to actually build this in just one second. But first, just kind of research into crucial considerations and research into optimal timing and research into like global priorities research. Does that all kind of count under as like an investment in the same way that movement building does? Because it's like it's an investment in knowledge in the future that you'll be able to use in perpetuity. I'm a little wary of just um, calling everything investment. <laughs> um, this does seem like a, a common yeah. tendency, right? People will say, oh, like, I'm, yeah. I'm not spending now. I'm, I'm investing in our children by building yeah. schools or something. And, mm. but, Went to this fancy restaurant to invest in my image, which right, I right, used right. to get a job, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. But yeah, I think there's like one very narrow case in which it, it does behave quite similarly to investment. And that's, as I was alluding to before, when it increases the effectiveness of everything that follows by some, by some like constant percentage or whatever. So if, if you were literally doing a research project that made everything that whatever the community or the institution or whatever that, that was doing it made everything they were doing 1%, 1% more effective or whatever, then it, then it is kind of like investing at a certain rate. But yeah, I mean, you just have to make sure that, yeah, that the, that the returns to doing that kind of work really are higher than, than the interest rate, because, you know, otherwise you, you, you should just invest and then fund like even more of that research in the mm-hmm. future. And yeah, even though I am doing or trying to do this kind of work myself now, I haven't actually done that calculation. So it's not like completely obvious to me that research is better than than, than waiting now. Yeah. I mean, it certainly depends on the kind of research and so on. But. Except, of course, the, there's one kind of research that can't be delayed, Phil, which is research on optimal timing and optimal distribution of effort. Exactly the work that you do, coincidentally. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, as, as we mentioned earlier, th- there are pretty high stakes to getting this wrong, right? So if if it were the case that like, everyone would have spent all their money and like borrowed against all their future income and spent it all right this year. If it weren't for like this one thought I had and this, mm-hmm. you know, then that would certainly like multiply the, the effectiveness of like yay uh, activity down the line by, by quite a lot. So I, I do think it's important. I mean, I didn't pick the topic at random. I, yeah. I picked it because I think it's important, but, but it's just uh, easy to say that what you're doing is important without actually comparing it to this natural baseline of investment. And that's that's what I'd encourage doing, even though I haven't actually literally done it in this case. I guess earlier we were saying that it seems like people have been coming up with important philosophical kind of crucial considerations at a pretty good clip. It seems like maybe, I guess I haven't thought about this that much, but it seems like it might be quite important to come up with those crucial considerations sooner rather than later, you know, even ones that aren't about like timing of uh, resource expenditure. So does that kind of speak up in favor of like fundamental research being done now rather than saving and doing it in 20 years time? Or maybe just the investment returns are sufficiently large that it's better to fund three times as much of it in 20 years time? Yeah, I think it really depends on whether it would affect the donation timing. Because if these are just considerations that would affect whether we, you know, spend the money on A or B in 100 years time, but it would only take 20 years to do the research or something, then you can do like way more of that or way like higher quality research into these crucial considerations if you start at year 80. So I don't think there's any general rule saying that like it's better to come up with crucial considerations earlier rather than later. Only ones that could like substantively affect the the schedule. I guess if you take a more extreme view and say like there's no incredibly strong reason to think that the hinge of history will be this year than any of the like thousands of years going forward. It then becomes, I think, pretty unlikely that you that's important to like do the crucial considerations research today as opposed to sometime in the future when you have more resources. Mm. Yeah, I guess in as much as you think that there might be pivotal moments this century, then it makes a lot more intuitive sense that it's important to like have rush forward like the knowledge that you have at that moment. Yeah, I think that is a good point. Okay, let's move back to this issue of kind of the risks involved with a fund that goes over many years. 
I guess, what kind of adjustments should we maybe make for the risk of the money being appropriated? Or I guess the people who are in charge of the fund just like not sharing the values that we have now or the values that we would want them to have. Is that potentially like a big factor in whether this is a good idea or not? Yeah, it's it's certainly a big factor. I mean, if it's if it's high enough, then it could it's always it, it could always just be high enough that you should spend the second or this month or this decade or whatever to try to get a better handle on it. Ideally, one would look back over the institutions of of the past and see like try to estimate the rate at which they've drifted from their values. But there, it's very hard because it's typically not very clear exactly what the values were. You know, they, they weren't very well specified and. Even when they were, it's not always clear how literally to read them, right? So, you know, this charity Scott's Care that, you know, that Will mentioned, I think, last time he was on, on this podcast. Uh, no, um, no, I don't, think, I don't think he has it. Oh, yeah. no, but he mentions it. You know, yeah. he likes to talk about it. This is like a classic dead hand charity that was set up to, to fund the poor Scottish people of London. And it's hard to know whether the funder really cared about that or just saw that as an important problem of, of their own time. So yeah, I just I don't have any kind of statistics on what the value drift rate has been. I can say that again, if we look at religions, right, um, there are at least some broad aspects of the world's major religions which are very similar to the way they were thousands of years ago. Also, these foundations that you know, like the Rockefeller Foundation and and so on, seem to have stuck with their missions over time. And family trusts tend to have done quite badly. But thankfully, the sorts of thing that Openfill, say, might might give to you or might become or something, if it took this line of reasoning seriously, would not really resemble a family trust. So I think we can safely exclude them from the reference class. I should probably write this up more formally at some point and, you know, link to it. But I, I don't I don't have it at the moment. But I, I did a sort of cursory look at what seemed to me like the more relevant, like, foundations and institutions that that were set up over the past thousand years or something. I mean, most of them in the past few hundred years. And and I I came up with a very sort of tentative value drift slash expropriation rate of half a percent per year for ones that were explicitly aiming to like last a long time and huge a relatively well-defined set of values. So they tend to last something like 200 years before I would say that they were like, that they had drifted. Mm. One class there was medieval religious orders, which often seem to exhibit this pattern of like, going back to the simplicity of the early church and, you know, really kind of taking vows of poverty seriously and then kind of having palaces 200 years later. And then there'd be like the resurgent Franciscans and Benedictines and so on, which would, which would be like a branch of the order that would, that would kind of could go back to, yeah, yeah exactly. So it's like a bit cyclical, cyclical potentially. Yeah. Something, I mean, there it's not really cyclical because I mean, yeah, I know what you mean. It's just like, unfortunately all the money that was given to the, like the first Benedictines is still in the hands of the, you know what I mean? Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So you have breakaway groups, but they don't get the, they don't get the money. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned Scott's care. I guess I don't know, don't know the details of that one, but that's like a foundation or a trust or something that was set up or charity that was set up in London to take care of very poor Scottish people along uh, in London a long time ago, which was apparently at the time a big problem. But now kind of the size of this charity perhaps has outpaced the number of Scottish people in poverty in London, tragically at the moment. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Do you know how long ago it was set up? Or uh, A few hundred years. I forget exactly. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I heard about an even more extreme case. I guess I'll have to like look this up and check that it's not an apocryphal story, but it's like, a foundation that was set up to take care of war widows in a particular village in England in the post-World War II era. And it, tragically, Britain has not been in a major war over the last 60 years. So the number of war widows has been waning. And I think the number of war widows in this specific village has become very small and like is probably asymptoting towards zero. Yeah. And uh, I heard that this charity went to court in order to try to get their mandate expanded to take care of 
everyone in poverty in in that village rather than merely war widows. But the court rejected it and said, no, like, go and look harder for like more war widows in in this particular location. Presumably at some point when there's literally zero, I I would hope that the courts would reconsider. (laughs) Well, maybe maybe they shouldn't because they should just hold on to this money uh, looking for for World War War III and take care of the many war widows (laughs) in the the post-nuclear apocalyptic world. With, yeah. an, with an outstanding UK legal system. <laughs> yeah. In any event, I, yeah, I think this highlights the, the general problem of figuring out whether an organization is really drifted or not. How much do you think that this set of considerations affects your overall argument? One thing I noticed is sort of you mentioning you know, the expected lifespan of like a lot of these big sort of like long reaching organizations. It's like something like 200 years was like your guess from the back of the envelope thing that you did. And like, I'm curious about how much of that 200 years, just like how much of that magnitude matters. Yeah. So again, interested listeners can do a little sensitivity analysis of their own by, by going to this discounting calculator and seeing what happens when you plug in a you know, tenth of a percent per year drift rate or a 2% per year drift rate. But yes, it, it can matter a lot. So in particular, if it gets higher than the impatience rate that people seem to build into their own decisions to consume or to invest, and that gets reflected in the interest rate, then that whole argument about investing for the rich people of you know 279 years from now doesn't go through because the drift rate acts kind of like an effective impatience rate for yourself. And you should be indifferent between like a dollar now and a dollar and whatever the interest rate is next year. You should be indifferent between spending now or yeah, prefer if the rate is even higher. Then again, I would I would point out that this does seem like a parameter about which it makes sense to have a lot of uncertainty. So in the face of that uncertainty, there'll, there'll still be a lot of expected value to be had in investing because, it, yeah, it could be quite low. It's actually been a slightly topical issue lately, whether it's the case that foundations might have too much fidelity, because it seems like there was a lot of foundations that were set up in the 19th century, which have goals that now we regard as not ideal, I guess. A uh, famous one is I think the, the, the Rhodes Scholarship was initially only available to white men. And uh, I think they needed an act of parliament, I think, in order to change that and, uh, and open it up to, to broader groups. But there's other foundations that have, yeah, like racist ideas or just like what seem like antiquated ideas encoded into them. And they've sometimes struggled to, to escape from that, although like often like courts will, courts will help them at some point. Yeah. So another risk is that there could be like too low a level of value drift that in fact, you know, even if we give the foundation a pretty general goal of, you know, furthering welfare, perhaps in future will realize that it's a different conception of welfare that matters, or maybe welfare isn't the main thing. And uh, we'll, we'll just have like squandered our resources that way. Is that something you've considered at all? Yeah, a little bit. I think this highlights the fact that what one's theory of value is and how one confident is in it is also an important input to the value of uh, really, you know, setting up a fund with a target objective that really literally tries to act out the reasoning that we've been discussing. So on one end of the spectrum, if you're just 100% convinced of a very simple, easy to articulate theory like hedonic utilitarianism, then you just write that into the fund's charter and yeah, the trust's charter and make sure that people can, can sue and that it's easy for them to sue if they ever see it drifting from that. I think that's maybe one reason why foundations have lasted a bit longer and, and religions even longer than that compared to you know family trusts and so on, because it's like there's like a pretty clear objective and you can, you know, it won't just sort of like be reinterpreted and dissipate. But yeah, I'm, I'm not sure we should be so confident about that. And so there's going to be some right balance to strike between letting people kind of do more reflection over time and kind of like change the goals of the fund in, in light of like what seems valuable to them on more reflection and uh, and the risk that, you know, after a few generations, it'll end up just going toward whatever random whims it seems to have drifted to. 
I suppose you could give it a mandate of just like do the best thing by whatever lights people view the best thing to be in the future. I'm, I'm not sure whether like the law would permit such a vague mission statement at the moment, but you know maybe in the future it would. Although I suppose then it's so vague that like it's almost, it's maybe problematic in the other direction because like you know anyone can like, claim to be doing the right thing, and then how do you litigate it to say that they're misusing it when they uh, spend it on themselves? Yeah, <laughs> it's, a, it's, a, it's a thorny problem for sure. Yeah, I guess this is like a potentially interesting area for kind of historical research or someone to look into this or, or legal research as well to think about how what this organization to be legally set up that so it's robust against these various different ways that it could fail, and I guess maybe what is the best jurisdiction in which to operate now or the best legal setup uh, that one can have if if one felt that one needed to set this up relatively soon rather than waiting for, you know, a better legal infrastructure in decades time? Yeah, that's definitely a question for for legal scholars. The best thing I've come across is that in at least the US and the UK, and I think most of the English-speaking world, you can set up charitable trusts, which don't, as mentioned earlier, don't have that 5% per year disbursement requirement and which, uh, yeah, have this legally enforced mission. But how that interacts with like, all those philosophical questions about the extent to which we should allow the values to sort of change on on reflection over time is like, it's kind of an interesting intersection. I'm, I'm not sure if any work's been done on that, but I'd be interested to see it. An advantage that this kind of foundation might have is that it seems like you've, you've got a better shot at having the right level of drift if it's like aiming for a very general ideological goal where you expect that there will be people in the future who will kind of share those ideas or at least like share the natural evolution of, the, of those ideas in as much as there's like you know, further thinking and further argument and further research and then they like gradually change their minds. It could be that like just by like having people to kind of choose their successes um, and as long as you're part of like a live intellectual community that will exist in the future, then you've got a reasonable shot at like neither totally drifting far away but neither getting completely stuck in like the ideas of 2019. Yeah, that, that seemed reasonable. With respect to just the, the, the details of the implementation, like putting aside the question of the evolution of values or anything, one basic thought that I've heard mentioned, I think Will McCaskill mentioned this one, but anyway, it's just like, yeah, one, one example would be to have a committee that, you know, where, where you swap out one every, one member every however many years instead of having a single, a single successor, right? Mm. And I'm sure a lot of thought could be put into how, uh, how, how best to design the mechanism. Just another factor that, I could imagine being a big deal is if the risk that the funds were expropriated or sort of not allowed to continue were pretty highly correlated with the probability that the fund was successful. And I don't know, just to make like the stakes clear, like we've talked about um, in the past, like patient people sort of growing to own or control like a decent percentage of the economy. And so like that seems like the type of thing where you'd sort of not want to rely on like past examples, but think that you know, society's going to have some strong reaction to that. Yeah, that is a worry. So even now, I know like Vox published an article a few maybe months ago now. I think the title was Silicon Valley's charity stockpile isn't getting any smaller or something. And it's terrible. I know, right? About the emergence of donor advised funds. And these are these funds in which people can, can invest their money while thinking about where and when to give. And um, it was all in very sinister tones and, you know, sort of suggesting that that they should be taxed or more heavily regulated. Similarly, there was a proposal in the UK to start imposing the 5% per year disbursement requirement on charitable trusts in the UK uh, at some point over the past 10 years. And it it ended up not passing, but, you know, it it could happen. And I I think it might be more likely to happen if these things got, got much bigger to the point of like owning substantial fractions of everything. So 
yeah, that does seem like a risk. On the other hand, again, I just maybe this is just a reason to think that like the interest rate you could earn would be a bit less than it would otherwise be if you think of it as just like a, a tax, like a you have to spend a certain amount every year just like clearly communicating what you're doing that like this money really will all go to something that's really valuable in the future. And Oh, but I'm not sure that that helps because it's like in as much as these piles of money get really big, then there's this huge temptation for the present generation to raid them and spend it on themselves, basically, which to some degree, I guess, is what's happening right now, potentially with the way that we think about these foundations or these like trusts that are building up large amounts of money. Right, right. People are uncomfortable about it because they see that they could do things that they want right now. Yeah, okay. So it might not not, not just be about <clears throat> communication, but just like an outright difference in preferences about what happens to the yeah. money. And, I suppose yeah. you can always like engage in like political advocacy with a large enough amount of money and hope, <laughs> maybe wield like influence in the in the back rooms, but... Right, right. Yep, that seems like that would increase that delta term, right? That would increase that expropriation rate and would push in favor of, of giving. Though, yeah, I would say um, if, if it were just about a single large fund, then uh, to some extent this could be this concern could be overcome by distributing it a bit, right? So you mentioned like, oh, you could just fish fish in the fund, right? Yeah. And I mean, if it were just a matter of like turning a $2 billion fund into like two $1 billion funds, then I, I don't know how much that would help. But one way I've sort of been envisioning this all along would be to just have it be a normal philanthropic strategy for people to have their own funds or the, you know, their own trusts and a kind of relatively you know, informed community of philanthropists that's like aware of the arguments for a given disbursement schedule and then coordinate around that. So if you, you know, if a person thinks that we're spending too fast, then they just save everything to move them, you know, move everything in the right direction. And if they think spending too slowly, then then they don't save and they, they just spend everything. And that would still result in the patient collectively owning more over time. But it, I think it has a better chance of like lasting than, you know, one like fund with some kind of rich person's name on it coming to own like big swaths of everything. Yeah, it's interesting that the, the Catholic Church has enormous amounts of assets, but has managed to protect itself, I guess, because like many people share the ideology, but also, I guess, through you know savvy political lobbying, they, they exercise influence and ensure that they don't get raided. Yeah, that would that would be one example of a seeming success. Yeah. So uh, another historical example that if, if you're interested, you, you might look into are the Islamic waqifs or however they're pronounced, W-A-Q-F is the spelling. So this is an institution allowed for in Islamic law which is kind of like a charitable trust in, in, in the English-speaking world today. You, you can set up the, the fund with its mission, and it has to stick to that mission indefinitely, right, long after the founder has died. And over time, I think because of certain tax privileges, but also just because of investing uh, like disproportionately much of their, of their assets, they came to control ever larger portions of the uh, economies in which, they, in, in which they resided. So there are some striking numbers about like, I mean, I forget exactly what they were, but they were like into the teens and 20s percents of, of Egypt and the Ottoman Empire and mm. Persia belonged to these waqifs. And they, they, seem, to have, they seem to have lasted and, and executed on their missions well enough. And, you know, some were broad, providing for education in the Ottoman Empire, and some were like narrow, some soup kitchen in, in Palestine. And so you, you have the dead hand examples, but you also have the successes. And they're much less of a thing today and and ultimately they succumbed to expropriation or to like world war one but you know a lot of small fortunes did as well so i i'm not sure i've heard these used as, as examples of why we might expect there to be a positive relationship between the expropriation rate and the size of the fund but i'm i'm not sure what the data is on that but anyway they're they're a fun they're a fun example to to look into yeah that's a uh, really interesting I'll look that up and uh, maybe stick up a link to a paper or at least the wikipedia article about that yeah 
All right, let's talk about some other more freestanding objections or reasons that people try to have a direct impact right away. I guess one group of people who have had a particular sense of urgency about about doing things right now are people who are concerned about you know risks from advances in artificial intelligence. Some of whom think that there's a pretty high chance that we could see you know real breakthroughs in AI that could cause it to have massive social effects over the next couple of decades. I mean, possibly even in this decade. I guess for them. The current moment seems particularly hingy, I suppose, and maybe also they're concerned that if we don't do things, then there won't be a tomorrow to save. So it's like they kind of have to spend the money now. What do you kind of have to to, to say to that group of people? Yeah, so if that probability is high enough, then we should spend a lot now. I think you might have even understated the case for caring about the effects of AI because it's important to spend now if it imposes a big risk, but also if it could sort of transform society in a way that renders future philanthropy kind of useless, right? If it just makes every, everyone so rich and you know, yeah. the whole world a utopia, then there's no sense saving for the problems of tomorrow. Those will also be gone. Uh, on the other hand, though, something I think doesn't, doesn't quite pull all the way the other direction, but it's also worth considering, is that advances in AI could increase the value of saving, right? So broadly speaking, it could increase the marginal productivity of the sorts of capital you're saving up, right? The, the intelligence to turn the resources saved into even more more good things than what would have been possible otherwise. So it increases R, potentially. Well, yeah, it could increase the interest rate, sure. Yeah, that's one way to think about it. Oh, but you're, it you're also, also thinking it like yeah. AI might give us more opportunities later on to use the money really well. Yeah, that's right. That's right. So rather than just increasing the rate of return on resources, it would kind of increase the extent to which those resources could actually be put to good use or something. It could also provide technological means for lowering that delta term, lowering that philanthropic discount rate at which you know resources could get stolen or values could drift. You could imagine very long-lasting institutions which somehow managed to like you know remain faithful to their original values for a very long time or like property rights just being made much more secure by the kind of monitoring and, and governance that that some advanced artificial intelligence could could maintain. Yeah. And so then, you know, an institution set up now might might actually really last for a very long time if AI kind of has all the promise that people most excited about it think it could have. So, uh, yeah, I, you should just uh, look at all the possibilities there. I mean, this is all quite speculative, of course, so I, I don't have too much to say about it. But in principle, it could go any which way. But I, on balance, I do agree that if you think that transformative AI is coming soon, that there is a, a very kind of important and fleeting sort of opportunity for spending that, that we shouldn't we shouldn't pass. Yeah, I thought you might say that for people in that situation, uh, it still could make sense to, you know, save up their money for five or 10 or 15 years to kind of you know spend it at like a, a moment somewhat in the future where it might be a little bit hingier or there might be somewhat better projects to fund or something like that. Yeah, I think that's also true. I mean, I, I guess I was mostly directing that response to people who thought it, that there was transformative AI coming in the next decade or, or something. Mm-hmm. But if, if it's longer than that, then it, it becomes ambiguous again about whether to go ahead and spend now or to wait for the possibility of an even more pivotal opportunity that, that, that arises over the coming years. Yeah. So I guess in as much as like the question of like how risky or how potentially massively beneficial is uh, artificial intelligence in the next few decades, in as much as that's the crux, so we probably just have to debate the the substance of that of that question um, from like a more technical perspective, or like which I guess isn't isn't the expertise of any any of the three of us. So possibly we should just move on from from this topic and and bracket that and say, well, if you if that were true, then uh, the argument potentially goes through. Yeah, I think that's right. One thing that might be worth making explicit is so even if you thought that like every year there was a 1% probability of like total human extinction. It seems like that does not have as much effect on like your timing as what 
I would certainly intuitively think. Does that just kind of increase this delta, this like risk of total expropriation by uh, one percentage point a year? Yeah. Yeah. So that seems funny to me just on some intuitive level. It feels like, wow, if we're like running such a high risk of extinction every year, this should just be like super decisive. And this would be like such an important moment and we have to like rush to do things. I think that might be because if there's a high risk of extinction per year, you you probably also think that there are really impactful, long-lasting things that one could do each year by getting rid of the risks. Uh, So it's increasing the hinginess parameter, potentially, as well as... Yeah. uh, But if it didn't affect that and only was in the delta, then it wouldn't make a big difference. uh, So so this is like, what if there was a risk of like some like rays coming from space that would just wipe us out at one percentage point each year? Yeah. Things that we could have no effect over. We couldn't build a defense against them, say. Right, right. Interesting. That does make a lot more intuitive sense. Okay. Yeah, I'm glad glad I clarified that. Yeah, so the next argument, which I think could potentially actually be really important, and it's maybe a bit of a shame that we've left it to, to this point to raise, is the issue of kind of serial dependency of work that you're doing to, to solve problems. So it often seems like you can't get 100 times as much work done in a given year just by throwing 100 times as much money at it. Sometimes you have to like spread your efforts over an amount of time because you have to like finish earlier steps before you can move on to later steps. I guess people give this example of kind of building a building. You can't build the final floor at the same time as you're building the first floor because you're going to have to go in order. Could this potentially give us like a pretty compelling reason to to start work on like object level issues quite a lot sooner than otherwise? Well, so a, a lot of what is in fact serial dependency ends up just looking like diminishing returns, I think. So as you said, you don't do 100 times as much work by hiring 100 times as many workers. And that's a reason to spread your efforts, right? But at least if you're just talking in the abstract about like the schedule on which you spend rather than like who you hire when. So we should compare it to hiring 100 as many workers for 100 years or something like that. So like having far fewer, but like a spread out over time. Right, right. And yeah, I mean, I've, I've already been accounting for the fact that there are diminishing returns. And as, as you get very, very big, then you, like, as I mentioned, this is, this is what gets us out of the, the Ponzi scheme conclusion, right? If you, once you get big enough, then you're going to want to start spending because if you got any bigger, you like returns would be diminishing by more than the interest rate, basically. But um, I think, yeah, in principle, this is an important, it's an important complication. And, you know, for, for those interested in looking up the, the sketch of a model that I that I have so far, you'll, you'll notice that it doesn't allow for serial dependency. Mm. But I don't think it too substantively affects most of the informal discussion that we've been having so far, right? Like, unless you're talking about really precise, you know, sequences of actions that would take hundreds of years to execute. It's like, yeah, there's going to be some like 10-year project, which we could fund now, but there's going to be a lot of them next year that could be started then. There's going to be a lot in 100 years time and you can fund more of them if if you wait. Uh, okay, Just, hold on. So you're saying, well, that's true today, but it's also true tomorrow. Yeah, yeah. There'll always be, although I suppose even those other things that you could start with more money in 50 years time, maybe you could have gotten even more juice by starting them now rather than 50 years time. Those, although I guess you're saying we won't know what they are at this point. So there's like I, things that will crop up that will be like things that seem like they should be started then. Yeah, uh, that's that, that we that we couldn't start now. That's that's what I was thinking. Yeah. Interesting. But I suppose in as much as you view kind of like all human endeavors as like a series of things that kind of often requires to like especially you see this potentially with research where it's like you need to do find make particular discoveries before it becomes apparent that this is like new field that you need to start. In a, yeah, if it's a single tree that's like growing upwards, then anything you do to push things forward now could potentially also push forward like everything later on. I see. Yeah, I mean this is an interesting point. I'll I'll just say that the one point that you should make sure that doing the earlier stage stage of the project earlier really does speed up, you know, the accomplishment of your goals, broadly speaking, by faster than the interest rate in a sustainable way, yeah. right? So not just that 
you'll get like more than 7% of the way toward solving a problem by funding the researcher now than you could have done by waiting. But that the fruits of the research can be cashed in next year and themselves produce like, you know, at least 7% yeah. returns as well. And, yeah. yeah. I guess with the zero dependency, it means that if you think that kind of the hingiest moment is going to be in 30 or 50 years time, then potentially then you do kind of have to start doing work sometime ahead because you're not going to be able to cram all of the work into that single year. And then maybe that brings us back a bit more towards common sense. If you think, well, if there's something on this century that's like really crucial, then maybe we just have to spend like some similar amount every single year in that century because we don't know when it's going to be. And even if we do, then we have to prepare ahead for it. Yeah, that seems right. But I I think you can capture a lot of this intuition just sort of by thinking about what the model says when there are diminishing returns to spending in each year, right? So if it's just kind of like, let's say impact is logarithmic in spending each year, right? So you want to spend at least something because if you don't spend anything, you're, you have like negative infinite impact something. It's like really bad. Mm. Um, but how well each stage of the 50, you know, <laughs> 50 step process goes yeah. might depend on like how fast you spend or something. And then you, 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 you want to spend something this year, but yeah, I was already, saying that, you, I was already yeah. saying that you probably want to spend at least a little bit this year. Yeah. The question is just like what fraction you should be spending. Yeah. So another argument that used to be really popular was pointing out that, you know, if you did things to reduce poverty in the developing world now, you know, building a factory, improving health, improving education, then that wouldn't mean that, you know, those people's children or like other people in the community would be richer. And there'd be like all of these kind of ripple on like flow through effects from the reduction of poverty. And that these benefits might compound at a pretty high rate for quite a long time, which gives you a reason to do it sooner, because like potentially they could be compounding at something approaching uh, uh, on, uh, you know, on some uh, version of this argument. Yeah, what do you make of that idea of like economic benefits compounding? Well, it's not just approaching R, right? It would have to be that they compound faster than R. And that would require some sort of market failure, right? That's preventing the beneficiaries from borrowing at R to fund the project in question, right? If education really is or, or health really is going to pay off faster than R, then it's like, why don't people just take out a loan to, to cure their disease and then earn the, those higher wages or whatever it is? So I think a priori, we should be somewhat skeptical that there are these opportunities for ways to help people that have compounding effects that are like really sustainably higher than the interest rate, but we shouldn't rule that out. There, there are probably some. And the real issue is that they would have to be able to compound at faster than the interest rate for a, for, for a very long time, right? For as long as you might expect a fund to last. And that seems you know quite unlikely because, well, that's faster than the economic growth rate, which would mean that, you know, that that like one school built, you know, hundreds of years ago, the flow through effects of that school would eventually come to dominate like the whole like economy of the region, which was built or whatever. Right. It would, it would like push up the growth rate to, you know, to to something higher than the, than the interest rate. And it just seems a bit implausible that that sort of thing can really, can really compound. It also seems implausible when you inspect what happens to the returns of the interventions in question. Right. So you improve someone's health right? Their income is like 20% higher or 50% higher in the next year than it otherwise would have been, right? But then what do they do with that money? They don't use it to like cure that other disease they had that raises their income by like another 50% and so on year in, year out. They probably just do roughly what everyone else is doing with it, which is contributing to an economy that's growing at the growth rate, right? They're consuming most of it. They're investing a little bit of it. That's just not going to grow as fast as holding on to the money yourself and investing all of it. Eventually, the benefits of that will outstrip this like short-term boost followed by a long-term slower growth rate. 
What about the question of uh, some people have suggested that the best thing to do with money for improving the world, I think somewhat facetiously, is just to save it because then that results in like more capital accumulation, more business investment, more, more borrowing, I, I don't know. And that that indirectly you know, has a big effect on the economy or makes people a whole lot wealthier in, in the long term. Do you think there's any kind of direct effects of the, of the saving that are, that, that are valuable? Yeah, so there are some direct effects, right? They, it would increase wages a bit, you know, because you have more capital around. And since capital and labor are complements, the, there would be, you know, increasing marginal returns to labor, increasing wages. I am skeptical that increasing the economic growth rate just generically is like the best use of philanthropic efforts. I know that some people have made the case that it is. So Tyler Cowen, perhaps most famously these days, this book, Seven Attachments, makes that case and other, others have as well. And there, yeah, maybe just perpetually investing it, not necessarily in like just a, a standard, not just putting it on the stock market or whatever, but maybe those particular sorts of investments that have the most capital thing. Or, yeah, yeah. Or like, or like investments in emerging economies. Yeah. Maybe that, maybe in the kind of startup that you might expect to have a lot of positive externalities, mm. like some biotech thing that couldn't capture all the, the fruits of the, the research that Something it did. Something highly innovative. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that is an effect. But uh, I, I would expect that making use of really high leverage opportunities for impact as they come along and just making sure that you're, you're like well-funded enough to take advantage of them is, is just going to be like most of the effect. And whatever effect you have on the growth rate is going to be pretty small. Okay. So another argument that one could make, I think, that would attenuate or yeah, weaken the case for, for delaying impact is that sure, you might be earning R each year, and so you're accumulating more and more money. But the costs of the things that you're going to want to buy in order to change the world later on are also going up at a at a pretty decent clip. So very often you you might want to turn this uh, foundation or like use the use the resources in the foundation to uh, like buy the time of people of scientists of policymakers or whatever else in order to actually have an impact. But their salaries are going up at one to two percent a year. I guess for skilled workers lately it's been uh, quite a bit more than that. So it could be that the cost of the inputs that you want to buy later on is, is going up. And, and this is going to like greatly weaken the kind of apparent increase in, in your purchasing power that, they, that you thought you were going to have. Yeah, well, I mean, this just gets back to a lot of what we discussed earlier, I suppose. Their wages are going up at roughly the growth rate. So, well, R is greater than G. So you're going to be able to hire more of those workers in, in, in the future than, uh, than you could hire now. I'm not sure why you would care about like number of workers and number of worker hours Per se, I mean, yeah. so I thought you might say, well, they're getting more productive. That's one reason why the salaries are higher. I suppose in some industries, productivity goes up a lot. So if you are like using it to buy the time of manufacturing workers, then maybe this doesn't bother you so much. But if you are like doing it uh, to hire masseuses whose productivity really hasn't risen at all in a hundred years, then this doesn't look so good. Yeah. Okay. Well, first off, if you really were just trying to hire as many people as possible or as many as many worker hours as possible, you know, towards some end. What you care about is the rate at which wages are increasing, and that's roughly at the economic growth rate. Wages as a whole has been a bit less than that, actually, because the, the share of output going to wages rather than capital has been declining. But yeah, maybe maybe for skilled workers, it hasn't been de- decreasing. Maybe it's been increasing. But anyway, still quite a bit less than the interest rate. So you can just hire more of those workers in, in, in the future if you invest. Oh, yeah. And also, just to return to the original the original observation about impatience being baked into the interest rate, I, I would imagine that in general, you wouldn't care just about like the number of workers that you hire, but about how much they produce and like how much they contribute to the actual project. Yeah, yeah. right. Exactly. <laughs> and if that actual project looks anything like the project of like increasing human welfare, mm. well, in dollar terms, maybe they're getting 2% more productive each year or whatever the economic growth rate is, right? But it's getting a bit more than 2% more expensive to help people each year if that 
Eta term mentioned way back when was uh, you know, is greater than one. So as time goes on to do a given unit of good, you might expect to have to hire like more than one, more than one worker or something. But I mean, Eta times G still still seems to be less than the interest rate because again, people are impatient, and so when, when they're deciding whether to hire one, you know, one person this year or one point oh seven next year, like they're they're indifferent, and you know that's because it's actually only gotten one point oh five times as expensive to like to do a unit of good for themselves. So it's gotten like 1.02 times more expensive to hire them, but then like because oh, I guess they're rich richer. Well. Yeah, 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 right. Interesting. Yeah, you I guess I didn't catch the response to the claim that it's like service providers yeah. in particular that are like disproportionately Bound having off, their yeah. wages go up. And so if it's also the case that you disproportionately need to hire service workers to like do good, then it does seem like wages of one small set like one sector of the economy could go up faster than g it's like that like, oh yeah, that yeah, yeah could be you know uh that's true. a problem yeah I, I just think that's true it's just like yeah then you do kind of have this fleeting opportunity to put this resource service workers to use on like you know this this important project now which in the future will in some sense be used up it'll be like all bought up by all the like future rich people for whom those workers are really like a really strongly complementary factors of the production of the things that things they care they about. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, sure. In that circumstance, then you should spend now while, while the, the work is cheap. Okay. So if you're like confident that the thing you're going to want to buy in future, or that the best thing that you will be able to buy out of all of the projects possible in the future is this thing whose cost is increasing like faster than G or like faster than R even, then that is a pretty strong reason to, to do it now. I guess we might think that's not terribly plausible at the cost of like a given amount of like scientific research or a given amount of like any service work going up at that kind of rate per year. I guess it's at least not what we've seen so far. Also, it would have to be going up and also the best thing to like literally the, the most important thing. resource right, by like right. so much yeah. that like it doesn't eventually just fall and become, uh, you know, not the most cost effective yeah, thing yeah, to yeah, do. Yeah, yeah. yeah uh, it does seem unlikely. So it has to be like really necessary that you use that particular resource. All right. So we spent quite a bit of time going through a whole bunch of arguments in favor of trying to have a direct impact right away and others in favor of waiting to have an impact. I guess just to go over those again, there's like in favor of delaying, we've got kind of, you just have way more money, <laughs> basically, and you're a larger share of full global wealth and, uh, and, and GDP. We're like learning and finding better interventions over time and like uncovering crucial considerations that might affect a lot how we, how we want to spend it. Also, just there could be more important, yeah, even more crucial moments in which you want to act in, in future than, than, than the present day. And then you've also got this like parameter uncertainty point that we made that if you're very uncertain about a lot of this stuff, then it seems like that can, for mathematical reasons, push you in favor of wanting to potentially save a little bit more. And then there's also this point that is, this is potentially a fleeting opportunity during which interest rates are as high as they are, and we could potentially build up such a large war chest. On the other side of the ledger, we've got movement building, potentially builds like uh, above market returns, which I guess you're then categorizing as kind of a form of investment and saving. And, uh, and certain and kinds of movement building, yeah. Yeah, and uh, some sorts of research as well. Then we've also got, obviously, there's a risk of the fund like losing all of its money, potentially all of its investments going badly, or the world being destroyed, so just like human extinction, or the fund drifting a lot from its original goals in a way that you wouldn't like and wouldn't endorse. We've got the possibility that the current moment is, is super hingy and that we're kind of mistaken when we think that, no, it'll be like more hingy later on. We've got the serial dependency issue that like, even if you knew a really important hingy moment act was coming sometime down the line, you have to start working ahead of time because you can't all cram it all into a single moment. And we've got possibly that like economic benefits compound. So there's like some reasons to act earlier because of the, the flow through effects you get to harvest them for longer. 
And then we've also got this issue that even though R is like quite high, to some extent, it's like in some cases, the, the cost of the inputs that you're going to want to buy later on with all of the money that you've built up could have risen. And so it's like your purchasing power hasn't grown quite as much as, as, as you might have otherwise thought. Right, right. Or it could have even fallen. And that, that is a good point. Okay, so going through all of that, kind of which arguments in your mind are kind of the most important or, or, or most decisive, do you think? Yeah, I think just the uh, straightforward interest rate point that you'll have more to spend when you invest is is pretty big. And relatedly, the impatience point that one should expect systematically interest rates to be to be high, to be, you know, to, to make it favorable to invest for someone who is patient. Learning also strikes me as an important reasoning in, in favor of waiting. I certainly feel like I've learned a lot about how to spend charity money, and I expect to learn more in the future, and I expect us all to. And finally, the the hinginess thing, the fact that opportunities for really outsized impact come and go, and that one should spend much more when one, one finds oneself in a situation where we can take advantage of one of those opportunities would be, would be the last. And structurally, it's sort of ambiguous which direction that last one would point in, because we you know, it depends on whether we're in one of those moments now. But my my guess would be that we're not at such an extreme version of one of those right now that it, all things considered, pushes us in favor of wanting to spend a lot now. So it seems like we definitely shouldn't be like spending all of the resources that we have access to, indeed, like borrowing lots of money and then trying to like cram them all into spending this year. That'd be crazy. So that'd be like spending 100% or more than 100%. On the other side, it would seem pretty crazy if we did like nothing to try to improve the world directly this year and instead just saved 100% of the resources. So it's going to be a kind of a question of balance here. And it's like, in as much as like the arguments in favor of delaying become stronger, then you save a larger fraction. And as much as the arguments for trying to do stuff right now become stronger, then you just like save a smaller fraction into the next year. So it's kind of just a question of the percentage and it's just going to slide up and down depending on what kind of moment we're in and what you know, how we view the, the balance here. Yeah. So one sort of broad heuristic that I think is worth keeping in mind is the following. If you think impact is about logarithmic in the rate at which you're spending, and if you think that you're at a, a typical time, not a you know a super uh, important or super unimportant time from a philanthropic perspective, it turns out that the rate at which you should disperse or like patient philanthropists as a whole should disperse their assets each year equals that philanthropic discount rate. That is, you know, the the rate of extinction plus the rate of value drift and fund expropriation and so on all added together. So yeah, if you think the latter is 1% a year, we should all be dispersing 1% of our assets each year and investing the rest. The intuition for that, broadly speaking, is that the less you put aside for the future, the higher the marginal returns to putting aside more for the future, but the higher the discount rate, the lower the, the marginal returns in terms of your impact to putting aside resources for the future. So, and yeah, those are the two effects. And they precisely cancel out in the case of a logarithmic impact function. Anyway, that's, uh, I think, a nice heuristic. One uh, red flag I just want to, to make clear is that this works out if by assets, we're referring to all of the resources which one could possibly get access to to, to spend this year, including the discounted value of, of future income. So at the moment, I think most of the EA community's assets unless you really, really sort of, you know, stretch the term, are rather literal assets, right? They're, they're held by open philanthropy and like various rich philanthropists. And relatively little of it is in the form of future income. So the, the question of like, what fraction of resources is the effective altruism community writ large spending versus saving each year seems like it should be straightforward. But in fact, it's like, in, in a way, anything but straightforward. So potentially, if you're just talking about a charitable foundation, then yeah, you can look at the dispersal rate. But then 
it is what, what about if people are our greatest asset, Phil? And uh, we've got a question of, yeah, I suppose if someone is going to live another 50 years and when you say like the next year is 2% of the resources that they have, I suppose then that means that like as you get older, you're, you're spending a larger fraction of like the assets that you have. But then we should think about the people who come later on and like the the, the donations that might become like aligned with those values that that join later on. I guess you can't kind of borrow against, but nonetheless, in a sense, they're like part of the net value of all of the net assets that you have. So you can say this this is like a lot more complicated, a bit like trickier to think about than, than it might initially seem. Yeah, it, it is a little trickier than it initially seems. But right now, EA wealth is concentrated enough that maybe it's not not all that tricky. So a relatively literal estimate of EA assets might look at the let's say around $10 billion that open philanthropy has just to you know think about it in round numbers, plus a few billion held by very rich EA aligned philanthropists, plus the present discounted value of all of the giving what we can pledges and, uh, and so on that are currently sort of in some sense pledged to be committed to some philanthropic cause that, that you know, we, we think is very important. You want to you want to include the present discounted value because this is the in a sense the budget available right now, right? This is the amount that we would all collectively have if we all borrowed against the the money that was going to be put toward like optimal philanthropy. Okay, so if that's the if that's the budget, that's the thing that we should spend one percent of say every year in this scenario where there's a one percent discount rate and impact is logarithmic in the spending rate. That said. One might also want to include guesses about future EA movement growth or just like future trends toward philanthropy and toward more kind of like thoughtful, reflective philanthropy that, you know, that seem to be underway, right? There's like Bill Gates' giving pledge has encouraged a lot of a lot of the world's wealthy to to give more and to give more thoughtfully than they, than they might otherwise have. And even more abstractly, you might think about sort of general trends and social values in one direction or another as part of this pool of assets being put to the very, very global public good of just like optimal philanthropy from through the lens of of some value system. Now, I think the, the important point there is that most of those sort of abstract assets listed at the end there are very risky, right? We don't have any uh, like very strong reason to think that everyone's going to be on board with like everything that, you know, anything you, you or I might care about in, in, in the future. So most of the value of putting money aside explicitly for some purpose along those lines is going to be realized in the scenarios where you don't have like a thousand Bill Gateses and Dustin Moskovitzes and so on in a hundred years time. And yeah, I, I, I prefer to just stick with more kind of like concrete estimates of EA assets and, and look at the dispersal rate of those. Because you want to like focus on particularly on the scenarios where there aren't massive like future assets that are coming on board. Right. I mean, I guess for one thing, I, I just don't think those scenarios are all that likely, but also like if you think that there's like a two thirds chance that that, that is the, the future we're, we're headed towards. And if you think that like that influx of assets would just push the marginal value of a, of a long-term fund like this to zero, right? But it wouldn't quite, of course, but in, in just the, right that would be the extreme. Scenarios. Yeah. So that just like cuts the value of the fund down to a third of what it otherwise would have been. But we're dealing with like order of magnitude considerations at this point. And I, I think it's unlikely that, that on its own, this would be the thing to like swing the swing the balance okay and and what do we do about like the the people so you got like say you know all of the people who read or listen to eighty thousand hours who like might shift their career on the basis of thinking within this community how do we think about like the rate of dispersal of the assets that they have which i guess is mostly human capital yeah so that, that's also a bit abstract 
I mean, sometimes it'll be concrete if someone's deciding whether to um, spend money like investing in their education or whatever versus go, going ahead and doing direct work as they are. But by and large, I, I think I would just say that the qualitative considerations that we've been discussing apply to the timing of the dispersal of like any asset, including career capital. So if you think that now is a really important time and, you know, like transformative AI is coming in the next next five years or whatever, then then that applies to one's career decisions as well. Yeah. And if one thinks that perhaps one should care about the possibility that like in 50 years you have this really pivotal moment, then likewise one should maybe, you know, just sort of get a whole ton of experience and PhDs and stuff that are that are directly aimed at being useful when the moment strikes. One thing to mention is that we've been talking about the importance of a time. I've right? been talking about hinginess as if it were this single quantity that you could just sort of like tag a moment with, right? 2019 is like, it's this, this important. But if what we really mean by importance is the ease with which resources can do good, it'll depend on the resource. And you could imagine a scenario in which money can do a lot of good, but hours can't or vice versa. Now, over time, you would expect the two to move in tandem because to some extent, one can be turned into the other, right? Like if there's a glut of hours, people can earn to give. If there's a glut of money, people can use it to fund 80,000 hours to encourage people to switch careers or whatever. But there will be a lag, right? And so it seems like there's a bit of a lag right now in the EA community where there's a lot of money, what with OpenFill, not a lot of people working on the sorts of things that might seem important from an EA perspective. And so a lot of efforts being put into essentially converting money into people. But you not expect that gap to last for like 50 years. I would expect that broadly speaking, you have this like hinginess thing, which varies over time. And then if you zoom in asset by asset, they could come apart depending on how easy it is to turn one asset into another. But then they tend to get pulled back together. But then they tend, right, exactly. So one shouldn't be misled into thinking that because there's all this demand for you know your particular skill set right now that you should you should work rather than investing for the future because that's just a passing circumstance so in your mind i guess like how much of all of the resources that you think are relevant for this discussion are we kind of saving versus spending each year and what do you think like when we try to throw all of these considerations into into the kind of calculator that you've built what would be the right level of of saving versus spending and i guess so does that imply that on the margin we should be saving more or or less or we're, we're doing things about right I, I did a very back of the envelope calculation on this a while back and estimated that I think it was something like 5% of the relevant quote EA assets are being dispersed every year. And so again, if you think impact is logarithmic in, in the spending rate, that would be right if you thought that there was like a 5% discount rate, which strikes me as quite high. But then again, I, I do to some extent feel the force of the arguments that like now is an important time. So it might not be all that high, but I think it's a little on the high side. But I also think that it's, even if it is not too far, not too far wrong, it's that way kind of by accident, sort of for the wrong reason. So my, my understanding is that OpenFill is looking to spend more quickly and investing only because they haven't yet built up the infrastructure to, to actually do that, right? They're, they're still hiring a lot of research analysts and so on. And um, that over the coming decades, we will collectively be spending more than that percentage per year. Unless I guess other donors come on board and then like, and then they, they're inclined to save or something like that. Yeah. It could right. shift in like either direction yeah. in theory. Yeah. Okay. So you'd say we're probably like a little bit, I suppose it's like, it's very uncertain because there's like so much that we don't know as has been obvious, but you might say we're like maybe a little bit on the, on the high side. So potentially if you know a new donor with a million dollars, uh, you know, got on board, started listening to the 80,000 hours podcast and was trying to say what to do, you might think, ah, oh, you'd be pretty happy to find them saving or putting it in a long-term foundation. 
Well, yes, or funding, you know, a very sort of high fidelity kind of movement building. I don't want to get sort of glossed over because yeah. I do think that's some sort important. of investment, whether it's either a financial investment or some like higher value investment that involves like advocacy and yeah. But again, the kind of <laughs> advocacy that actually does communicate the idea that perhaps you what keep. you should do is just like put all your money into either more advocacy or just uh, fund. Yeah. Yeah. The full term or perpetual fund right? <laughs> or perpetual movement. Um, do you know of any groups that are doing that kind of movement building at the moment that you're like more excited about because they have this kind of reinvestment aspect? One thing that comes to mind is that Natalie Cargill at Effective Giving has been reaching out to and making herself available to be reached out to by large philanthropists and talking with them in depth about all kinds of EA relevant questions, including timing. I think that that's promising both because you know, when, when you manage to talk to someone with a lot of assets, that, that's obviously like a big opportunity, but also because spending more time per person means that the fidelity is going to be higher. Just sort of mass outreach seems like much less promising in, in that respect. Yeah. You're much less likely. So if you do like a general media thing and then lots of people find out a little bit about you, the odds of them reinvesting in like that kind of movement, but it's, it's not going to happen. So you, right, it doesn't right. have this quality that you're looking for. Yeah, exactly. If, it, if it's just about something that's like relatively like well-known and easy to understand and implement, like becoming vegetarian or something, and you're just going to have your 30 second spot to like most persuasively get that message out. There also um, isn't currently that I know of like a really easy way for somebody to like make like one quick decision, decide that they're investing in this way. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's, that, that is a good point. Like it's hard to, to tie your hands to long-term right. investment. You can put your money in a fund where it has to be given to some charitable purpose eventually. But yeah, yeah, that's a good point. So I imagine that, that the idea that we should be investing more rather than trying to have a direct impact right now is kind of a tentative conclusion because you don't want people to go away with a memory that you definitely think that we should uh, always be doing that. Do you have any sense of like how likely it is that in five years time, you'll think that what you should have said now was actually, oh no, we should be saving less? Yeah, it's a good question. I Maybe a, a one in three chance or something like that. Yeah. 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 Thanks. Thanks for really asking that to, to make it clear that I'm still thinking through this and it is, it is quite, it's quite tentative. Yeah. Yeah. I guess people always want bottom lines, which is very understandable. That's what I always want. But uh, right, right. at the same time, I guess you don't want to like lock in bottom lines that like when you're very, kind of very early on a research project. Right. Right. I mean, I, I will say that it's easier to spend once you've saved than to, you know, <laughs> than to like to take back the money that you spent. So it's a very good point that we actually haven't raised is that like one of these things is reversible in a way that the other thing isn't. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true for most opportunities for direct impact that would be under consideration. Like if you have an opportunity to avert an existential risk and you, you, you let that go by and the risk happens, then that's not reversible. Right. And so it could be that looking back, I will be dead and, you know, <laughs> you know but I could realize that like there, there was a, you know, once in forever opportunity that, that was, that was passed up and that won't be reversible. But I think, yeah, in general, the reversibility consideration definitely pushes in favor of investment. Yeah. Another interesting thing with this is that in as much as you're like part of a community or a group of people that kind of has a shared goal and is like spending resources in order to have like similar effects, then you got this issue that kind of if you save more, someone else could choose to spend more to kind of offset what you're doing. And it's kind of a bit unclear if you do something, whether that is going to have like the net effect that you were desiring, given that other people can kind of try to undo what you're doing with their resources. Do you have anything to, to, to say about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's not just about being in a community. If anything, that that mitigates the problem. The, the, the problem is that what you're providing is a public good that other people care about. And the community is a way of resolving the problem that that raises, namely making it easier to coordinate around the provision. I think ultimately, this just highlights the fact that Donor coordination is a, is an important problem that we should all, and I mean every philanthropist should think harder about and develop kind of more thorough and robust like tools for dealing with. 
At the moment, I, I think it's quite likely that most things that listeners to this podcast will want to fund will, will end up just funding with with open philanthropy and, and including including a saving. Yeah, funding is this term for yeah offsetting the the behavior of other people in right, this particular right, way. Right. Yeah. So for every dollar you you save, they they spend a dollar more than than they otherwise would have, and vice versa. On average, of course, not literally. But what one can try to do to be a bit more sophisticated before the like optimal donor coordination mechanisms been worked out is sort of subsidize the patient behavior of, of other people who care broadly about the same kind of things you care about, but are sort of acting on a higher discount rate. So you might somehow have a, have a commitment to match spending on whatever the cause is, whether it's like a give directly cash transfers or research into, you know, risk reduction or, or whatever it might be in 20 years time or in even longer than that and uh, thereby make it more appealing even for someone less patient to spend more slowly than they otherwise would. Yeah. So are there any other bottom lines or comments you'd want to make to people who are in, in the audience who are listening, who are like regularly donating money, you know, potentially like giving what we can members who are giving 10% of their income each year. So like what they should think in light of all of this yeah, research on optimal timing and maybe how it should affect them? Sure. So one one point is that Again, if one's behavior is is just funging with that of other philanthropists, then giving more means that more goes toward good causes in general. But it, you know, thinking about the timing and, and the cause in particular doesn't doesn't matter too much. But if what you're doing is actually making some counterfactual impact, I think the common practice of just giving a certain percentage of one's income each year as one earns it is almost certainly wrong. It would be like a really weird edge case for that to be like the best schedule in which to give. Either either you should probably think that we're spending too slowly, in which case you should give as much as possible now. And that is sort of um, borrow against yourself, right? So give, you know, 20% this year so that you have less to save for yourself for next year for, for your, you know, you put aside more for your retirement next year, or you, you should just try to save up if you think that collectively all the funders of whatever you're putting your money to are spending more quickly than they should. So that's, that's one takeaway. A second one is that if you want to try saving money for for a while, but don't want to run the risk or want to minimize the risk of just getting more selfish and spending it all on yourself, something you can do is set up a donor advised fund. So this is a fund that you put the money in, you get to control what charitable cause it goes to, but it has to go to something charitable. You can't withdraw it for yourself. And the money grows tax-free while it's while it's in there. So yeah, it goes at a faster rate. That's uh, that's the second takeaway. And a third one, which relates to the the career point we discussed earlier, is that you might think that money has just more more value in general. Philanthropic money has more value than it might otherwise have seemed. I think people in the EA community talked a lot more a few years ago about earning to give and about like the good that can be done with one's dollars. And more recently, with that arrival of open philanthropy and other other rich aligned value aligned donors the discussion shifted very heavily in the direction of what one can do with one's career instead and if one i think remembers that this like temporary imbalance won't last forever right that in time the money will get turned into hours and you know and and money will become very useful on the margin again the value of earning to give starts seeming higher after all right and maybe maybe there's there's quite a lot at stake when one makes that extra you know 100,000 or or million or whatever, and puts it in that fund to just slightly sort of bend the course of history far down the line. So that actually leads uh, really perfectly into the next section that I was going to talk about. At the beginning, we said we're not going to talk about careers, and we've we've mostly done that. We've like they've come up a, a handful of times. 
But it'd be interesting to like focus now on what implications does this uh, overall mindset, this patient mindset have for people's specific career choices? I guess you're saying because of the ability of money to potentially compound for a very long time, it potentially weighs in favor of earning to give relative to other things. And I suppose you're also saying, well, we may not have like so much money relative to, to the people involved forever. And so that like also points in favor of earning to give. And of course, like one of the big differences here is that people die in a way that money doesn't. And that's like potentially one of the big disanalogies here is that you can't like save up you as a person <laughs> indefinitely and then spend yourself in 300 years. Uh, to some extent, you're compelled to spend a certain percentage of your time each year of, of the time that you have left. And uh, your kind of career capital, like all of the skills that you've learned die when you die <laughs> as a result of aging. Are there any other kind of considerations we should highlight for how, yeah, uh, the, the, the person case is different than the money case? No, I, I think that was about covering. Yeah. Okay. So points in favor of earning to give, I guess might also point in favor of, you know, uh, collecting career capital or like trying to build up your credentials and your skills like very aggressively early on, potentially if there was a trade-off, if it's the case that kind of the job that allows you to have the biggest impact when you're 22 doesn't like teach you that many skills. And there's some other job that doesn't have almost any impact at all, but like builds up your skills a great deal and will, you know, allow you to go further in the long run. This seems to point in favor of the career capital, like uh, yeah, patient role. Is, is that right? Yeah, that does seem right. As you said, it's not going to push as hard as in the money case because you're not going to be able to like just scale up for 300 years or whatever. But it would it would skew it a bit more, right? It would mean maybe you should spend a few more years at the beginning of your life building skills because you've you know discounted away the the value that you'll be able to produce as a highly skilled person later in life less. Yeah. So I guess that to some extent that's relying on this view that probably the present year or the present decade isn't especially hingy relative to times that might come later on. I guess if you ever do hit a moment where it seems like, yes, this is the hingiest year of my lifetime or at least of my yeah. career, then maybe you want to switch out of like building career capital and just like go for impact in that period. Yeah, that, that's that's right. I mean, I, this was true in the fun case as well, which is why I thought the question of whether this century is probably the most important ever was kind of a red herring. It just it just depends on like the life expectancy of the the thing under consideration, right? Yeah. And is this going to be the best time to spend the asset for as long as the asset could be expected to last? Is roughly the idea within a life. It's yeah. Is this is this you know is this a really important time in my life, or is it going to be a later one, an important one later on? Are there any other implications? I guess one that I wasn't quite so sure about is maybe this kind of perspective pushes in favor of being a generalist rather than a specialist because you might think, well, the things that we think we want to specialize in right now. Maybe we're mistaken about that. We're going to have like new considerations in future. You want to like keep your options open. I suppose it's like a general thing in favor of flexibility potentially. And as much as you think it's like not necessarily the case that we can see what the hingiest moment is uh, of, of your career today. Yeah. Is there anything in that direction that you that you buy into? Yeah, I, I think that seems roughly right to me. I mean, I expect, you know, you're 80,000 hours. You, you've probably thought about this in, in more detail. So I, I don't know exactly what the best like generalist careers are or anything like that. I like to tell myself that, you know, an econ PhD is sort of up there. But um, I would say it's not as simple as pushing in the direction of generalist over specialist skills. This line of thinking could also recommend developing the specialist skills that you think would be or, or like could be most valuable in a really important moment if it if it happened to arise, right? So like becoming a constitution writer, however, however you train for that. Maybe it's kind of a cartoonish example, but yeah, the hopefully that conveys the idea. Seems like another thing pushing in the direction of being a generalist is just that if you're earning to give, it doesn't really inherently matter what you're specializing in. So indirectly through that path, it pushes in favor of generalism. Right. Seems like it. Earning to give is kind of like being a, a, a generalist. It's just you, you run into the, the problem that, you know, a time may come when a certain skill is in particularly high demand and 
there isn't the time to convert money into people with the skill in question. When we're like focusing, zeroing in on this kind of like one consideration, which like, even if it's kind of an important consideration, it's only one among many, we've got to like make sure we don't lose sight of like each individual's kind of personal fit and like what jobs are actually available to them. I guess also they're like coordinating with, you know, other people who are trying to solve the same problem. So potentially if, you know, other people are building career capital, there might be a reason why they want to go and have direct impact right away because of these diminishing return reasons that we were talking about. And I guess also just like your comparative advantage relative to what, what other people can do is going to be like, yeah, like there's, there's a whole lot of other stuff going on here. People shouldn't just think about discount rates uh, kind of in isolation. Sure, sure, of course. I guess another consideration for people's careers that kind of potentially spills out of this is that it seems like global priorities research, or at least research into optimal timing uh, specifically, could be really important. Do you have any advice for people in the audience who are, you know, considering, I guess, possibly becoming academics, studying economics like, like you are, or potentially, you know, working on global priorities research questions specifically? Do you think more people should be doing this? Like, how might they go about it? What kind of people are suitable? Yeah, I definitely think more people should be doing it. I think there are a lot of undergrads involved in effective altruism or just, uh, you know, recent graduates who majored in economics and have a very kind of suitable mindset about all this. But surprisingly few who are in grad school for economics and or, or like seriously considering going into grad school specifically to study these sorts of big picture, long-termist questions that are relevant to patient philanthropy, as I like to call it. I'm not sure exactly why that is. I guess one possibility is that it, it just doesn't occur to people that the tools of economics are very well suited to, to answering or like at least shedding light on these sorts of questions. I know that like a few years back, some people in effective altruism, including 80,000 hours, were recommending that people study economics to do development economics. And yeah, I mean, there's a lot of valuable work to be done in development economics, but it's just not, you know, diminishing returns again. I think it's just, it's not quite as neglected. And to my mind, like high stakes is some of the long-termist questions that I'm trying to at least start working on. So I would just say, yep, there's this, there's this really high impact thing that people can do if they're, if they find that they have some, some skill at economics and they should, they should really go into it because uh, it's, it's very important, very neglected. Do you have a strong take on what subfields of economics people ought to focus on? Yeah, that's another good question. Well, yeah. So first I'll say this, there's some debate in economics about the relative value of theoretical and empirical work, right? And there's been a big shift over the past few decades from theory to empirics as, you know, we've gotten computers and just like the ability to do, to do better empirical work. And something like half of econ papers used to be theory and now it's like 5%. Anyway, regardless of what background beliefs you are bringing to the table about the relative value of theoretical and empirical work, I think it's pretty clear that the further out you're looking into the future, the more quickly the value of empirical insights decays than the value of theoretical insights, right? So it should kind of shift you toward theory. Within theory, there's there's uh, plenty of interesting questions in microeconomic theory on some of which we've even discussed, I guess, on the like the the game theory of how to how people should interact when they have different discount rates and want to kind of like leverage each other to, to you know to be whatever more patient or less patient, I suppose, than they otherwise would be. The mechanism design for like keeping institutions faithful to their original values. Yeah, some questions along those lines. Then there's in macro theory, there's lots of questions about long run growth and about the interaction between growth and other sort of macro variables, like like maybe just like the the rate of technological uh, risk. There's a, a really great paper that I had the privilege of helping to to oversee this summer, but which was written by this, this guy Leopold, who 
yeah, looks at what the, the Jones growth model has to say about the relationship between what a tweaked version of, of his growth model would have to say about the relationship between economic growth and existential risk. And I think more work along those lines would be really valuable. Then uh, there's, uh, yeah, just a lot of stuff to be learned from the economics of discounting and optimal timing and the economics of catastrophe, as it's sometimes called. Environmental economists have thought a lot more about the uh, optimal kind of like mitigation of catastrophes than most other economists or indeed most other people. And uh, there's a lot to, to be learned from them for existential risk more generally, I think. Yeah. So uh, just before that, you were going to talk a little bit about how people can get involved in global priorities research. Yeah. So just for a, a little bit of background, global priorities research is sort of this this term that's been coined by some folks in the, the EA community over the, the past few year, years for foundational academic research, broadly speaking, into the question, or even just how to think through the question of how to do the most good with unit of resources. So far, it has sort of seen itself as somewhere at the intersection of philosophy and economics. And it's been just like dominated by philosophers because all of the, you know, the, the big scholars in EA so far pretty much have been philosophers. So if you want to get into it as a philosopher, there's, it's, it's just much easier. You, know, you can come to Oxford, be advised by one of the philosophers at, at GPI or elsewhere in, in the community there. As an economist, I would say there isn't really that much infrastructure at this point. So the path would just be to be a good economic student, get very familiar with the EA literature, right? I feel like that's almost another major at this point, or like <laughs> at least a minor, like having read the the 500 blog posts or whatever, and, and knowing I mean, all I the jargon. Done that, so. <laughs> huh. Is there actually a list somewhere? Well, there is a list at the bottom of the GPI research agenda, actually, oh. just for... Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. That. That was really um, and just scattered throughout it, right? So, I mean, in the references. You know, as you're saying, it's like important potentially to like get up to speed on lots of the concepts that people involved are familiar with. Right, right. Indeed, like part of the motivation for GPI and for like making an academic research field out of this is to convert this informal literature into actual like textbooks and academic papers that will be taught in classrooms and be just like like a mainstream established field of knowledge. But until that happens, it, it it's really valuable to be familiar with the sort of like body of thought. And I guess just given the ways in which it can interact with philosophy or even just given the like contingent fact of like all the philosophers that will be around if you try to, you know, if you try to work at GPI or, or, or talk with other people who are calling themselves global priorities researchers, knowing at least some of the relevant philosophy, I think turns out to be rather important. So that's uh, in particular, yeah, parts of ethics, decision theory, and epistemology would be, would be the big three sort of like normative domains in, in philosophy. And I think that's, that, that, that actually can be quite important for understanding why the questions that seem most important from like an EA perspective are often neglected in mainstream economics. So this, like we've been talking a lot about discount rates, right? It's like very common in economics to confuse welfare with preferences, right? Where if people like right now just care more about what happens in the near term than what happens in the, the long term, economists will casually say that it like increases welfare more to to discount or something. And that's just like, that's like the kind of like philosophy 101, like rookie mistake that would, you know, not fly in a, in a place full of philosophers. So I think, yeah, th those would probably be like the, the big three prerequisites to getting into global priorities research as an economist. Yeah. Do you have any comments on the question of like, what sorts of people are really well suited to going into global priorities research? Yeah. I mean, so at least on the economic side, it would just be someone who's good at economics, at least decent at philosophy and good at 
crystallizing nebulous problems, right? Not just the ability to execute on a like tried and true methodology, but to formalize problems that haven't yet quite been well posed. Do you have a strong take on, let's say I'm a starting my senior year in university. I'm like really talented at economics. I want to do global priorities research. Do you tell this person to like go straight into a PhD? Do you think it's important that they like spend some time doing a bunch of global priorities research before they start grad school? Just have a strong take there. Yeah, it's a good question. So I've spent the last year at GPI working somewhat independently on on some projects. And I definitely think that that year has let me clarify my own thoughts about like what I what I want to get out of grad school and what what questions I'll be researching. That option is open to, to others now. There's a GPI pre-doc program that we've we've just launched. There's the first um, pair are have just started, and there might be applications for for that for next year opening in a few months' time. There might not as well. I'm, I'm afraid I'm not sure yet, but at least there will be the year after that. People can also spend the summer as a summer researcher at CEA slash FHI, the other organizations in, in Oxford also doing EA research. So yeah, I think those would be the the most like directly relevant opportunities for people interested in taking some time off and, and like I think that can be useful. I also think it can be useful to explore a given subfield in more depth, right? So if like you're not sure whether you want to do like theory work or empirical work or something, and you can get an RA job doing one of those things, probably empirical, there are many more of them, then yeah, you should like try to get an RA job for a year or something. But you have to be careful with that because there's a lot of like, there's a lot of grunt work jobs out there. And, you know, you could end up wasting like two years doing work that doesn't actually give you much information about the field that you're considering. So it's, it's, it's a good opportunity if you can, if you can find it, but just be careful. Nice. All right. We've been going for ages and should uh, probably wrap up. I guess as a, as a final question, as I mentioned at the start, you've taken this pledge to give away what's probably going to end up being a pretty substantial fraction of your income. How has this, uh, all this research kind of affected your, your own giving plans, if, if at all? Yeah. So interestingly, the research hasn't affected them at all because, um, <laughs> so this, yeah, this all started in, in high school when I inherited a bunch of money and decided I would set up a donor advised fund, right? One of those things I m- mentioned earlier, you know, where you put the money in, in invest it tax free and have continued to put all my you know, all my excess money, all my charity money in, in into the fund while I continue to think about when and ultimately perhaps where to give. So I've I've always kind of had the intuition that there's so much more to learn and that there's so, so many opportunities that could open up that uh, might be better to might be better to invest. And this research is just I mean, I have learned a lot doing it. This isn't just some sort of like propaganda, you know, where I'm trying to like justify my existing decision. But um and yeah, I mean, further research could definitely overturn the conclusion, but at least in my case, it hasn't actually changed what I've been doing. Well, our guest today has been Philip Trammell. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Phil. Thanks for having me, Rob. I really uh, look forward to, to returning to this issue again once the, once the research Phil and others are doing on it has advanced a bunch further. I find it to be such a wonderful topic uh, with so many compelling considerations on both sides. I, I kind of can't wait to see where things shake out in a few years' time. The 80,000 Hours podcast is produced by Kieran Harris, audio mastering by Ben Cordell, transcripts by Zachy Ulhack. Thanks for joining. Talk to you next week.